So three, two, one. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Presented by Two True Freaks, this is the commentary for Oliver Stone's JFK. The movie's just started as I've been sitting here running my mouth. And so, uh, joining me this time, because this was sort of his idea, by the popular demand of only one, I am doing a commentary for JFK. The whole thing was Michael Bailey's idea, so I'm throwing him under the bus. Welcome back to the show, sir. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I, I will fully take the hit on doing a commentary for this film because I absolutely love it. So, and you were the only other person on planet Earth, I think, that was like, "Yeah, let's do a commentary for a three and a half hour film." So, well, uh, the last time, just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, I thought that, you know, I had something to prove from the last time I did a commentary. Apparently, which has gone down in infamy for the cigarette break I took right there in the middle of it. To which I say, you guys try sitting still sometime for that many hours, talking nonstop without having a smoke. Anyway, so right now what we're doing is, uh, you know, listening to uh, President Eisenhower run his mouth a little bit. This is his farewell address to the nation. And um, I guess now's probably not a bad time to get into the origin story that we both have in this sort of interstitial part of the movie. Basically, I saw this, I, I was a little bit of a Kennedy student, well, really history student, but Kennedy assassination student when I was a kid. And so I found out that there was a movie that was going to be coming out about it. Couldn't wait for it. Totally missed it in theaters because my pro my pop had philosophical problems with taking his son to see an R-rated film. And who can blame him? So I had to wait because somehow this made sense. I some for I had to wait until it came out on on a videotape and then watched it at, uh, at home, which I think it kind of loses something in pan and scan. But obviously nobody cares what I think. Anyway, and this was, if I had to put a thumbtack on the map and say this is where it all started, my, I guess being a little bit of a skeptic of the conspiracy theories regarding the uh, Kennedy assassination, this is where it all started. But I want to give Michael a chance to uh, talk now. So how, how did you uh, come across this movie? Well, you couldn't miss it in 91. This was a, this was a huge film. Uh, I did not see it in the, in the theaters, but I remember vividly sitting with my mom uh, in my parents' bedroom because uh, she was uh, just getting over being sick. So this had to be 92. Um, and she was just getting over her first bout of uh, cancer. And so she was spending a lot of time. And she loved to watch movies. Uh, she was one of these people. She was the movie person of the house. Uh, and she had this on. And I really wasn't like super interested in, in seeing it at first. last moment, they turned back. The world breathes with and, and you can't stop. And I, I had no real opinion either way at that point, at the tender age of 16, of, you know, what happened with Kennedy. But this film kind of got me going, though. I will say it is more amusing that my friend, one of my best friends in high school, completely and utterly bought into everything Oliver Stone was saying in this film to the point where we couldn't talk about it anymore. Because anytime I disagreed with it, it turned into an almost screaming match. So... This isn't one of those things where, you know, the two of you could politely agree to disagree agreeably? Uh, ben was a passionate person. So... Uh, I, 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 that is where I learned to deal with people like that, where 
sometimes there are just things you don't talk about. Uh, but no, I just remember sitting there and being really disappointed because in the initial initial VHS release of this, it was a two-tape thing. Right. So you get to a certain point, and I'll never forget what that certain point was, and it's just like, I gotta I got get the other tape now? I think it was when Clay Shaw's is uh, getting booked for um, conspiracy, yep. so I think that's when the flip over was split. And that's a, you're right, that is a weird point for it to happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's really... The, the theme to this movie, the music was done by John Williams, and it's really interesting to realize that he didn't score it to the film. He did all the music ahead of time, and Oliver Stone just used it where he could. And I, one of the podcasts that inspired me to podcast called The Diner, as I call it, the podcast that caused me to, that I ripped off more than anybody else uh, in terms of uh, tone and format, it had a lot, had a musical bent to it. Like he played a lot of weird, obscure music. And he pointed out that there's an apocryphal tale of when Battlestar Galactica, the original Battlestar Galactica series, was coming on, that John Williams was there when they recorded the opening theme just to make sure it didn't sound like Star Wars. Uh, whether that's true or not is... I, I don't buy it at all, but still, it's one of those things. But then you listen to the JFK theme, and it sounds a lot like the Battlestar Galactica theme when you play them side by side. It's kind of funny. Well, that's one of those things I'd actually have to take your word for because I've never followed, uh, didn't really care or connect to a Battlestar Galactica all that much. So your word's good enough for me on this. <laughs> I guess my like the emotional connection that I've got with this movie, there's a word for it. I don't know, like truthiness. It's not really so much about whether or not the events depicted in this movie, or at least the theories conjectured by this movie, are in fact true. To me, it's about the cast, it's about the music, it's about the intercutting with, you know, what was at the time brand new film footage with, Mm -hmm. um, you know, basically newsreels, archival stuff, and the it's to me it's a movie about ideas. It's not so much about you know a literal presentation of history and historical persons and that's why i connect to it and so i don't i'm not sure that that's what you get from it but it's just actually that that's exactly what i get from it this this film for me is an emotional experience more than anything i am of the opinion that i can disagree with what oliver stone has to say all day long but no one could deny that he is not a talented director and the editing on this film and the choices he makes in lighting and how he puts together. I mean, there's people in this movie that you're like, how in the hell do you do that? And, you know, he would continue that sort of thing, you know, through uh, Natural Born Killers and all that. But this one especially, it just, it's one of those things where I, I will watch this several times a year. Every once in a while, I'll just throw it on and spend, you know, however many hours... Uh, just going over it again, and I can't get enough of it. Just because it's just a fascinating, uh, fascinating film. We are watching the director's cut for those at home interested. Right. Uh, yeah, and I probably should have mentioned that up front. But you know what? Can I say this is? I have a suspicion this is going to end up being a little bit of a haphazard podcast. But I, you, hmm? you got to love any anybody that has a a, a Nazi war helmet on their desk. You know, and as that's like a decoration. <laughs> Well, you know, and that to me, that was uh, one of those little 
details that you know I never noticed until someone like pointed it out. And not only is there a um, a, a helmet on the desk, but I think directly above that, um, I forget what you call it, but the Nazi emblem, directly above that, there's like a bullet hole. Yes. Like whoever got it. <laughs> Got it, like right in the noggin. So, um, what is that called? Their little flag thingy? What's that? The little twisty X-looking thing? I, I'm not quite sure. Okay, all right, fair enough. We're so neither of us. I have are... failed you. Put the last early in the commentary. <laughs> well, to get into it though, actually we've got a little bit of a cameo appearance coming up here in just a few moments. Mm -hmm. uh, Perry Russo, uh, one of the. Uh, star witnesses of the garrison in fact that's him right there in fact but um no he's at the bar i thought okay then i guess we are out of sync now okay because i was looking at the bar oh okay uh, see i tried to warn you dude but you're like oh no it won't matter so okay but anyway but ba basically though it's um we've got i i, I don't want to lapse into explaining what we're seeing but i do got want to give you guys another frame of reference i got walter cronkite on my so do i okay and um this is basically, I guess, the the when the moment when Jim Garrison decides to just kind of bury his head in the sand, even against his own better judgment. In the face of a national tragedy, nobody wants to necessarily believe something like this that uh, that there could be more to the to the story than what. And there's, by the way, is Perry Russo, who, speaking of Nazis, I, I thought he was one. <laughs> um, not like actual German, you understand, but I guess, what do you, like a Nazi sympathizer, American Nazi, whatever you want to call him, so neo-Nazi. Bund? Wasn't it the Bund that, that, the, that was that organization that um, sympathized with the Nazis? I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I, 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 I kind of pride myself on not really knowing a whole lot about but I don't know. All right. Well, uh, anyway, you talk for a while. I'm, uh, there was a point I was trying to make, now I've totally lost it. Uh, no, it's just interesting that that he, because because he's a uh, played by Kevin Bacon later in the film, and it's kind of interesting when you find out later that uh, that he was uh, the guy that was applauding Kennedy's death because he applauded Kennedy's death. So there wasn't a whole lot of acting going on there. So, and we just saw Vincent D'Onofrio, future kingpin. I will be making all the comic book references. Uh, through the course of this film, uh, going right uh, missing, and, you, and you've already met, or rather, you've already missed Jonathan Kent. So yeah, Jonathan Kent was there. Uh, we saw the future Kingpin. <laughs> now we have the uh, the worst uh, remake of the Odd Couple ever. <laughs> With, and you know, uh, this was something else. I, I got to say, watching this for the first time, and there's Jack Lemmon. I was used to seeing him in more like comedic roles. And that's not really what he's doing here. He's this is, I guess, more of a dramatic. He doesn't really have any jokes or anything like that. He does like one or two funny things, but that's about it. Um, now, I've, I've, I've got a question. Since we're on the subject, uh, we just cut away from a uh, Dealey Plaza. Now, have you ever been there? Have you ever been to Dealey Plaza? No, my uh, my sum total experiences in Texas is driving through to El Paso and then El Paso. So. I did not. Uh, I, I did not meet a Mexican girl, and I did not die there, because obviously I'm doing this uh, commentary. So you know, Marty Robbins was not you know the hallmark of my life. But uh, um, so I've never been to Dealey Plaza. So I'm assuming you have. Um, a couple of times, yeah. And the first time I went, I'd already seen this movie, and so I thought, 
or no, I, no, the first time I went, it just, I just sort of filtered it out, but I hadn't seen this movie yet. And so then I saw this movie, and just the, like, the angles and stuff that they used there in Dealey Plaza just kind of made me think, oh, wow, there's all kinds of places to hide there. And yeah. That, and that was kind of my, um, again, that was sort of another nail in the coffin of my uh, believing uh, any kind of, you know, conspiracy or anything like that related to killing the president. And having been there, that place, I know they love making it look big. And everything, whenever they do movies and stuff, that place is, you need, a, you need a microscope to find the entrance to the school book depository building. I mean, you could never hide there. there th that space is so confined. And at least I was there when there still was a grassy knoll. I'm, I'm going to guess that had somebody been standing behind the picket fence, A, he would have been visible. B, he would have been audible. And I just don't think there would have been so much confusion and stuff that unfolded. It's there are so many just layers to this thing that that. But going there myself, I think, was really the first step. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I could see that. I, I, you know, it's always interesting going to places and then seeing them on film, uh, you know, through the lens of the cinematographer and the director and all that. So, I, I I'd like to go there. It's just. I don't know. I, I, I would be too. I, I, th I think I would be the type of person to just kind of wander around and try to figure out how everything kind of played out. Uh, we we uh, saw a couple minutes ago Lee Harvey Oswald being arrested. And of course, that's Commissioner Gordon from the <laughs> Nolan films. Uh, Edward Asner, uh, who is uh, kind of a bastard in this film, uh, was not only... J. Jonah Jameson on the Spider-Man animated series, but he was also Granny Goodness on Justice League. Yeah, of all characters, yeah, he was Granny Goodness. It's Which was very just true. perfect. But this is like a real, like, you have two vet veteran actors just not overacting at all. They are just selling this entire sequence. And, you know, Jack Lemmon, you know, you're, you're right, he, he has some dramatic roles, but he's kind of known, you know, The Odd Couple, I think, is one of his bigger movies with Walter Matthau. Right. And here he's just, he's just a, he's a bum, basically. He's an alcoholic, and he just plays it so well. Now, is this actual archival footage there, or is that with Gary Oldman? I no, can... that's Oldman. That's Oldman. All right. Sitting at home, smoking a pipe. Watching the black and white tele. That's a pretty big TV for the 60s. <laughs> well, and you know, and since you mentioned it, that's actually one of the little bits of authenticity about this movie that I kind of like. I really don't want this to be taken the wrong way. But, you know, let's face it, the racial situation in America, it was what it was. And this movie yeah. doesn't, it doesn't really talk about that, at least not explicitly, but it is seen, you know, that there is this divide between white people and black people. And, you know, the sexual politics. And everybody uh, smokes. Yeah. And then, you know, like the sexual sexual politics of the situation, women tended to stay and work out of the home. where And it's it was the rare one that was really any kind of a career woman. And they don't gloss that over here. They don't make, what's her name, uh, Garrison, something other than what she was. Yeah. And there, there's, an, there, there's just this fucking honesty to the material and the time in the history of it, the tragedy of it, that that even if you don't believe in the idea of a conspiracy theory, you can at least appreciate this at the very bare minimum as a sort of, I don't know, sort of like a, a, a period piece sort yeah. of murder mystery. Yeah, the authenticity of the of the sets and of the of the costuming and everything, I think, goes a long way to kind of sell it. 
And, you know, th- this this first, I, I don't even want to call it the first act because uh, I, I think this film kind of defies the three-act structure a little bit. I agree. Uh, but this first sequence where, you know, before he really starts diving into it is, is kind of interesting. I think that's uh, the uh, some of the... That's another thing about this film. Oliver Stone has a great ability to meld the reenactment of the uh, historical uh, footage with the historical footage to the point where it kind of looks authentic. I mean, he does a really good job with it. So to where before you were like, well, is you were asking that that's a legitimate question at this point. Well, and, you know, the other thing is um, I think it actually, you know, by blurring the line so much between archival stuff versus new footage, whether he intended to or not, he sort of it, it enhances the style of the film, and it, it's I don't know how, but it just somehow makes it easier to invest your your imagination into it. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see now, Wayne Knight he's been in comic book movies, hasn't he? He was Microchip in That's Punisher Warzone. That's and we got Michael Rooker who is on The Walking Dead. Uh, God, he looks young. Oh my God, everyone. <laughs> You forget this is like over twenty years ago at this point. So, uh, the guy uh, standing at the moment, the actor's name escapes me. Uh, he's one of Garrison's right hand man. He uh, he does a lot of Law and Order, and he's usually playing the killer. Uh, so it's kind of interesting really? to see he's, him. He's, sort of, he's got more of like a good guy type of uh, facial structure, you know, with that jaw and everything. Yeah, and and that's why when he plays the killer, it's actually more effective. To me. <laughs> room is smoking <laughs> extreme sort of stuff yeah you know I, everybody oh hello this is the now correct me if i'm wrong wasn't this the first televised murder in american history i believe it was i mean it, it you know no one uh, I, I i you know i my go-to things on this is my dad uh so i'll talk to my father about you know you know where he was during certain things and he said that this was just crazy Watching this happen was just freaking crazy on on live television. So I, I just I you know you got to think you know television's still relatively new in 1963. Right. Uh, I mean it's it it had been around you know it was around you know pre World War II but it was the only thing bars and rich people had. Uh, but really you know th- this was a time when not everybody had a television in their home. So you have this new device that is bringing you information and entertainment in a new a new way. Like like if if you, if you hear someone get shot on the radio, it doesn't have the same effect as seeing somebody on your television get shot, gunned down, and right. killed. So, and it's, I, I can't imagine that. Well, and that actually leads into another thing. Like people always want to say that the security around the uh, around the police department building, access to Har- Lee Harvey Oswald, so controlled and all this stuff. Number one, I don't think the the Dallas police had necessarily conducted you know the the case up to that point, for, <laughs> completely on the up and up. Let's face it. But number two, Jack Ruby is just such a nondescript looking person. I could see him blending in, and he's just slowly sneaking his way in. It's not hard for me to imagine he could sneak in armed. And blow somebody away. Well, not only that, he was kind of a shady character who probably had some officers in his pocket. So, I mean, you don't operate a nightclub in the man. Not have some kind of 
shadiness going on in your existence. So, and I'm not saying that the, I know it's very popular on television to, to present just every police force as being completely corrupt because it it just makes for a more dramatic story, but every police force has a corrupt, a corrupt angle to it. So to me, him getting in there is not a surprise. And it's not, and it's not like this thing where it's like, well, how did that happen? Well, it happened really easy. And and I, th- but more to your point, I think you're right. You know, he was a short, you know, business-looking guy, and having a gun on you at this point probably wasn't a big deal. So it, it's not like now where when you walk into any kind of city hall across the United States, there's a metal detector there. You know, the it's different. I mean, at this point, you could probably get onto a plane with a gun with no problem in 1963. So I, I don't know. I, I just think I think people try to apply contemporary mores and political feelings to things that go on in the past and ask how that happened when they just don't know what the hell they're talking about. You know, and I, you know, I, I agree with that. Now, I've had a, a little bit of a connection to a. a Dallas PD, you know, relics of whom were were on the force back when these things were happening. Not necessarily that exact precinct. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying they were around during this vintage. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, look, if I'm not terribly mistaken, Kennedy won Texas in 1960. I mean, this was Dallas was not the most Kennedy friendly city in the entire world, but he had his share of admirers there, no shortage of whom were police officers. And even if one, I mean, like it's not a stretch to think that just one of them might've had enough anger in his, in his Mm -hmm. mind over the fact that, you know, this son of a bitch just shot the president. I can't, I I can't give this guy what he deserves, but I know somebody who can, and he wants to do it. I'm going to let him, you know? And, um, you know, he's not going to get away with anything, but he is in a sense kind of, I don't know, in his mind, kind of, uh, performing a public service, maybe, and I—it's just—it's one of those things that, to me, that is the the easier, more logical thing to believe in. Whereas, if you buy into the idea of a conspiracy, well, then how many people are there are in the mob's pocket in the Dallas police police department, or were they involved with this? You know, you have so fucking many more questions that you have to answer, so many more loose ends, and to me, that's what any conspiracy ultimately comes down to—is loose ends and. The fact that there are so many with this any supposed conspiracy for the JFK assassination, all it takes is one person at the right time saying the wrong thing to the wrong person, yeah. and this whole thing comes tumbling down. It's just easier for me to believe that you know maybe things are what they seem here. You have this lone communist nut job, or at least communist sympathizer, blew Kennedy away, and – here we are, you know, and it, it's not a stretch for me to believe that. Whereas uh, any kind of conspiracy theory you care to come up with, I, look, I think both the conspiracy and non-conspiracy theories have holes to them. I just see fewer, sto- fewer holes in the Warren Commission explanation. Well, it's also that you, you kind of look at you look at it as, you know, Oliver Stone kind of puts like 30 conspiracies together and like the, a conspiracy, you know, stew essentially uh, where any one of the players, I mean, you know, again, uh, I go back to talking to my dad and my father is not one of these conspiracy nuts. You know, he is not, he has always been kind of straight ahead uh, at least in, in my, you know, 
getting to know him as an adult, you know, he's not the one of these people that, you know, has the tinfoil hat or anything like that. So when he says something like, oh, it was the CIA because, they, you know, Kennedy screwed them over in the Bay of Pigs. I'm like, OK, that's that's just as legitimate as the mob or anybody else. So, <laughs> you know, uh, Joe Pesci was on the screen a couple minutes ago, and he is one of the highlights of this movie for me. I love his performance. He is just amazing. I mean, I like him anyways. I loved him in ah, the other half of uh, The Odd Couple. <laughs> Very nice, Oliver Stone. Yeah, they're all in here. Yeah, I think that was everybody's big regret. Russell Long didn't have a uh, have some kind of a scene with um, blanking on the guy's name, Jack. What's his name? Yeah, um, <laughs> that would have been great. Walter Matthau is so un, un, underplayed in this film. His accent's like really broad, but his performance is just so subtle. Like this is where he's the one that puts the the bee in Garrison's bonnet essentially and does so in the most matter of fact way possible. Uh, and you know, a, a, anytime someone goes nat shit and Peppa, I just, uh, I just, I just love his performance. Oh, thank you, honey. <laughs> and that's the thing about this film is I think that is the reason why I watch this film again and again is the performances. And even even like the people that have like three minutes of screen time, I, I you know, we're about halfway through the film, we're going to come to the moment of the movie where a guy is on screen for maybe five minutes and nearly walks away with the whole damn film. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, we'll get to that. But um, this is actually and this leads into another part of the movie that I that I'm actually kind of happy. Well, I've sort of got mixed feelings about basically you've got Oliver Stone. He's showing the same. I guess moment, the same sequence, but from so many different angles and from so many different, I don't know, suppositions. Who is the shooter? Where were they sitting? What were they, you know? And there, I guess I can appreciate the fact that there is a little bit of honesty in as much as he's willing to, to at least show a, a hypothetical sequence of Oswald doing the shooting, just to give you an idea of whether you believe it or not, at least how ridiculous he thinks it is. And so I do, I do think there's a little bit of honesty to that. If you replace all these books with books about Superman, you have my average Saturday night, too. <laughs> Though I'm, I'm, I'm more willing to. OK, here's another thing. Again, I was joking that everybody smokes. Sissy SpaceX comes in and is delivering all of her lines. But during the course of it, she is emptying the 15 ashtrays that are that are in this office. Yeah, it's like kids were born back then. <laughs> Look at this. Jeez, that's like the fourth one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> so, um, she, Sissy Spacek has a very unenviable task in this film where she has to be the wife that doesn't support her husband. Uh, which is usually the character in most fiction that pisses me off the most. But uh, I think she's had worse roles, dude. She's not getting covered in pig's blood in this movie, so. Yeah, but at least then she gets to kill John Travolta. So. Right, but that's you know. pre-aggravating Scientologist weirdo John Travolta. That's not. <laughs> an... Eighteen. And, and the greatest American hero was her prom date. It was such a sad night for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody got laid. <laughs> <laughs> I like him feeding the dog and just not giving a shit. <laughs> this is 
this is one of those things that, again, I'm not saying, look, it's not for me to judge. If Jim Garrison said that, you know, he would have conversations like this with his wife over dinner, I guess I believe it. But it just, it, to me, it's a little hard to believe that, uh, I don't know, that he would talk that way to his wife in front of his children. Um, really about, when you come right down to it, some kind of gory subject matter. I, I just, is that dinner table conversation for anybody, you know? Does anybody talk like that? You're asking the wrong person, but I think normally no. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, fair enough. Right. <laughs> I I have a weird family dynamic though, so there's that. But uh, no, I I don't know. It's these quieter moments that make me appreciate the film more because it really, you know, as much as this is about Oliver Stone, uh, you know, expressing his feelings on the Kennedy assassination, it is. Jim Garrison's story and having these quiet family moments sets up the turmoil that's going to come later in the film. I mean, you believe them as a somewhat, you know, at least on the surface, a happily married couple and, you know, just the conversation between Spacek and, and, and Costner about, you know, my mother, you know, warned me not to marry such a serious man and all that. And he's got the, I'm going to go do my, I'm going to go do my homework before I get laid run down the hallway. <laughs> uh, uh, the lighting in this. Oh yeah. It's just amazing. Just absolutely amazing. Just the red tinge to everything. Right. And then it, it sort of moves cause time is moving and he's working his way through these encyclopedias, well, not encyclopedias. He's working his way through these volumes. God, this is just such good, you know, I'm I'm of the I, I I'm not like a major devotee. I don't even know what you ha- what the hell you, you call this more abstract style of filmmaking, where like the shadows move and there's really no dialogue to speak of, or at least not dialogue in the conventional sense of people speaking to one another. But I, I've always kind of had an affection for like that type of uh, cinema, I guess. And he only does a little bit of it here, but it's still pretty good. Here's a, here's a weird question. I know hipsters uh, like to adopt the that the type of glasses we see all throughout this film. But aren't you kind of glad that we were born in an era where that wasn't your only choice? Well, you're speaking to a guy whose first pair of glasses, unbeknownst to anybody except himself, was a pair of Mickey Mouse glasses. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. had they had these this clunky Clark Griswold thing going for him. And um, honestly, the, the, the pair of glasses I always wanted was Dean Cain's from the first season of Lois and Clark. To this day, I think those are freaking awesome. They don't make them like that anymore, but if they did... I'll agree with that. But this is an interesting way to tell the story is that, you know, he's reading and we are hearing what he's reading through the voices of the actors. And it's also when you think about it, kind of another it's a layer on top of a layer. It's it's Garrison reading testimony by Lee Bowers, which so we have flashback to him giving his testimony. Then he's giving his testimony. We flash back to him to, to like whatever it is that he's describing. And how often do you see a flashback within a flashback? But it they, he does it here, and, and rather effectively so. Yes, it's much better than the flashback within the dream sequence of Ang Lee's Hulk film. Yeah, geez, what was so, that? <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> was, that, that was a little hard to follow after a while. <laughs> so, but I just love he's you know he you know Costner sitting there talking to himself, and you and I have probably both been in that situation where we're reading something and it just gets to us so much that you just start talking to yourself. So it's like the authenticity of the film is another thing that really uh, gets me about this. And 
you know, just the different film stocks through these, you know, these quick cuts. And it's a lot of quick cutting, which I'm sure people out there like it. Like if Chris Honeywell was on the call, he could probably really give us more technical jargon about what's going on on the screen. Mm-hmm. I just know that it's visually effective. Right. And I, and I know that it, I forget that actor's name who plays Lee Bowers. I've always just there's just a, a simple quality to his performance not i don't mean that in the sense he's an idiot although maybe but more that um it's just very natural it's very naturalistic does it make sense yeah he wakes up and he's still freaking talking about it (laughs) see i've had this but it's usually about something going on with dc comics so Mm. it's it's not as uh, dramatic so well, I think that honestly, that was probably you and me back in like 2007, 2008. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what the fuck happened to Superman, guys? Is he rebooted or is he not? Answer the fucking question. I like the I like the comparison Costner makes with uh, with his playing chess with his dog. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they never really go you know no one ever says the dog's name is touchdown so you really gotta kind of figure that out for yourself but still that's the dog's name seriously touchdown he's a he's a what he says you know that's like saying you know touchdown here is not very smart because i beat him five you know three out of five times playing chess um. <laughs> and that's only because i've seen this film like a thousand times so oh and most people would be like, how can you sit there and watch a three-hour film that many times? Because it's that damn good. Well, and that, and hey, I try. <laughs> so uh, how many times can you watch the same football plays over and over? Don't tell it. Don't tell me I don't have a life, Jack. Yeah, yeah, no t- how long is your average football game? Get out of my face. Ah. <laughs> uh, Man, you know it's really it's really sad that these hats are back in style, but only for hipster douchebags. You know what that means? What? They're not in style. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, have you ever been to um, New Orleans? Uh, no. Uh, which is odd because my sister lived there for about a year or so, so I would have had a place to stay. But uh, I've just never. And it's only about eight hours away from where I am right now, so it's not like a huge drive. Uh, but you know, Marilyn Manson said it was a hole, and if Marilyn Manson says a place is a hole, I mean that's just uh, that's like good enough for me. You know what I'm saying? Well, fair <laughs> yeah. enough. But I mean, I'm primarily used to a pre-Katrina New Orleans, so I don't know what the place is like these days. But at least at the time that I went there last, I was like ten years ago, I guess. I mean, it's amazing how much that place does not change. But I actually saw this building, or what's left of it. And if I'm not mistaken, this is a, in the French Quarter. Um, it's just it's a really interesting little town. And again, this is one of those it, – it's, I, I guess, a, a convenience of cinema that Jim Garrison, as far as history is concerned, he did live in New Orleans. This movie – I think would be fundamentally less interesting if he lived in fucking Pittsburgh or someplace like that. You know, there's something about New Orleans. Yeah, and and it's just the, I mean, really, he wouldn't, if he had lived in Pittsburgh, he would have never have gotten involved in the case. But the fact that certain things about this case happened in his backyard, 
I mean, it's not like Lee Harvey Oswald and Lee Bannister were hanging out in, you know, like Atlanta or anything like that. So, you know, I guess it's basically one of those things where you have a a national tragedy combined with uh, I don't think that shot of Tommy Lee Jones in this flashback is there in the original cut of the film. I think that's a director's cut thing. I thought I remember. Maybe you're right, but I just I thought I remembered that. But uh, but um, I, I think it's one of those things where national national tragedy combined with something happening in your hometown equals you're more emotionally involved in what's going on. So he'd be more apt to try to start investigating it, and then he falls down the rabbit hole. You know, it's just it, there's no getting out of that. Right. Well, and I guess in relation to that, like his motives, I mean, obviously, as far as history is concerned, his motives are very much up for grabs. Now, the way I see it is this. Being as I'm a um, a uh, conspiracy skeptic. You know, that's a great way to refer to it, because that's exactly how I feel. What? Like. It's not that I don't believe in conspiracies. I'm just you just got to put a lot in front of me for me to totally buy into what you're selling. <laughs> well, yeah, and but you know, the minute you you reach that conclusion, you kind of have to answer the question of well, there are really two questions. Who killed Kennedy? And if you if your answer to that question is Lee Harvey Oswald, and that's kind of my answer for it. If that's your answer to the question, then then you have to ask, who was Jim Garrison? Was he a nut job seeking fame, which I find unlikely? Was he, you know, who the hell was this guy? What were his motives for doing this? And basically, I guess now is probably as good a time as any just, I guess, maybe to, I don't want to soak up too much of our film time here. But then again, we do have several hours to kill. So basically, the way I see it is this. Um... Lee Harvey Oswald, he shot Kennedy. Shortly thereafter, he was apprehended. Fucking nobody seemed to want to take notes during his um, during uh, during his questioning. I think because number one, there was a sloppiness to it, and number two, motherfucker confessed, and there was a very clear chain of evidence. They didn't think they were going to have any problem convicting this guy and and you know sending him to prison for the rest of his life. Fucker gets shot on on the following Sunday morning. They don't even have a case put together yet. They don't have a written confession from the guy. They don't have anything. And so I think if there's a conspiracy theory, it's contriving a case to convict a legitimately guilty man. And everything that they've done – because otherwise you're left with – you're left a- asking the question, if these guys are so freaking smart, if they're so powerful, how did Jim Garrison ever get as far as he did? And the only answer I've got to that is these are people that they were covering – basically, they, they, they put an original story out there, and by God, that's their story, and they're sticking to it. But they're not willing to kill an American citizen to protect yeah. us. The most that they're willing to do is make smithereens out of his reputation because you know the dude should have just minded his own business from the start. The little busybody district attorney, he should have recognized his place, but he didn't, and so now he, you know, his reputation's mincemeat. I could see them doing that, but you know, uh, clearly they were not willing to kill an American because, you know, look, if they if they were willing to kill a president, a guy like this has got to be a joke. So how did he make it? Well, there's my theory. So the the thing about that though is when you have something like this, where 
where somebody is making a big case. One, they got a light, a, a lot of light on them, and you know, uh, care, a care film, you know, says that you got a lot of light on you right now. But two, because his, as presented by Oliver Stone in this film, his case is so out there. It's basically one of those things where we're just going to let this guy run with it because no one's going to believe it anyways. Like some people, like you'll get like a part of the population believing it, but it's it's like people who are abducted by aliens. If there's this big conspiracy to hide alien, you know, a- the alien presence on our world, then hell yeah, you let you know whatever farmer nut job, you know, spout his mouth because that just you know sullies the pool further. So it's easier to your thing plus like you said killing i the only reason i believe that uh something else was involved besides lee harvey oswald is just the angle of the shooting and the fact that you know his head goes back uh and i'm not going to do the back into the left joke but i'm just saying you know so uh, you know just just in everything that i've seen of it i kind of think that there's a second shooter and what you know, who who has the best motive? Well, it would be the organization that Kennedy was, you know, screwing over that had the means and the resources. You know, what is it with any murder? You know, uh, means, opportunity, and motive? Mm-hmm. Well, to me, the CIA has all three. So I'm not suggesting that. But And to be fair, everybody involved in the CIA in 1963 is no longer in the CIA right now. And I'm not even sure they're all alive. So it's not like I'm trying to sully anybody's names here. Uh, because, well, one, the NSA is listening to this conversation to begin with. So, you know, we're probably on several watch lists to begin with because we're saying things like president can kill. So Yeah, that's true. Which is going to be nice because if anything happens to the recording, we can just contact the NSA and they can give us theirs. And they probably got better equipment than we do anyways. I would imagine they do, yeah. So there is a convenience factor there of having a big uh, intrusive government. So, <laughs> Again, this is one of those th- the scenes where you're intercutting between the flashbacks and the conversation and just the close-up and the claustrophobic feel of the shots of Jack Lemmon. Um, ah, it's just, God, it's just a beauty to watch. Well, and the, uh, you know, again, they, there are questions or I guess questions. I don't know. There uh, conjectures or questions, speculations, you know, whatever you want to call it that people have, uh, or even whenever they recount stories rather than just saying, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I met so-and-so, you know, the period detail combined with the flashbacks, and, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of drearier color palette that the flashbacks tend to have versus the slightly more vibrant color palette of the newer stuff, you know, and I honestly think that, you know, the smoke, uh, you know, we can, you know, joke about, you know, hey, it was the 60s, fucking everybody was smoking everywhere and all all that stuff. Um, but it, do, it actually does kind of add a sort of stylistic element of, you know, things being hidden, you know, and smoke and mystery this haze of lies or or at the very least confusion and uh i don't know maybe i'm getting a little too artsy fartsy symbolic here but i i'd like to think that you know if you look at the 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 moments when the cigarette smoke is thickest like right in front of the lens it tends to be when people are lying their asses off and i think there's Hmm. something to that so 
Just saw Tommy Lee Jones, so it's nice that Two-Face and Commissioner Gordon were hanging out there for a minute. Yeah, and who was he in Captain America? Uh, he was a general. All right. I think it, it was a name character from the comics. I just can't, for some reason, can't remember it. I just remember him and... <laughs> I'm sorry, he almost walked off the with the film with the interrogation of uh, Arnim Zola. Yes, sitting there did. eating this steak right in front of him. <laughs> like a boss. <sighs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we don't have hats as a fashion piece for men anymore because I look terrible in hats, so... Well, John I'm- Candy was apparently very nervous to do this role. He makes it seem so effortless, but yeah, apparently that's not um, water. They just you know sprayed on his face. That really is the real thing. That he really is sweating because he's that nervous. No, he's fantastic in this movie, and John Candy was a brilliant actor to begin with. I don't know what he was worried about, because yeah, you know the funnier parts of Uncle Buck, and he's the security guard in National Lampoon's Vacation, and he's in Splash and all that. And I know Family Guy has made fun of it, but you know that last scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where he gives his little speech about who he is? I mean, that right there is kind of a heartfelt, dramatic moment, and he pulls it off. Comedic actors are better at doing drama than dramatic actors are. Buddy is hard. Uh, Yeah, and I would tend to agree with that, too, yeah. So when everyone's like, well, he's a comedic actor. How can he do drama? I'm like, it's it's really easy at that point. <laughs> Unless you're Jim Carrey, but yeah. Because most comedy comes from a dark place anyways. So it's not that hard to just shift the gear slightly to the left, whereas, you know, you're trying to be, you know, trying to be funny never works out. And John Candy's accent in this in this sequence is just amazing too. Yeah, that sort of hippie Argo thing he's got going. Yeah, yeah I love that. <laughs> I actually, this film is eminently quotable to me. Um, I got the fact, right ta ta, but the wrong ho ho. <laughs> in fact, if I ever give a date on one of my podcasts, I usually do it in the style of Mister X. Uh, so. I'm blanking on that. How does he do it? 1963. Oh, <laughs> 22nd of November of 1963. Um, in fact, I make I think more obscure references to this movie than than any other movie in my podcasting history. Really? <laughs> yeah. I will. I will just slip little lines of dialogue. Paying attention. Well, along with the Superman the movie references, which are brilliant throughout the course of his. Of Hey Kids comics, but still, there is a line. It's much for we're nowhere near it right now. But you know what? We should probably talk about all this, shouldn't we? Um, yeah. All right. So you've got you've got Candy there, and uh, he's basically Garrison thinks lying his ass off about uh, you know just how well connected or how no, uh, how knowledge knowledgeable he really is. What does he really know? about goings-on with this uh, Clay Bertrand character, whoever the hell that is, and, you know, calling, uh, making phone calls to find a, a, a representative, find legal representation for Oswald in Dallas. And it's just, it's one of those things that if I could believe there was a conspiracy theory, well, number one, why are they going to get an attorney for somebody that they're about to whack anyway? But number two, if you were determined to find yourself a, just a 
piece of shit loser attorney. He's the guy you'd go to. This guy that has no business yeah. in anybody's courtroom. He's one of those hack lawyers that – and apparently this is – by the way, to shift gears, this is a little – this is, a, in fact, a real prison. This is – these are the – you're looking at the real thing. If, if you don't recognize them as an actor, he's a fucking felon. You know, He's really in there. Ah, Kevin Bacon is so good in this movie. This is actually what really turned things around for him. He wasn't doing sort of kids' adventure movies anymore after this. It was um, – his whole career was different after this. He, of course, was uh, Sebastian Shaw in X-Men First Class. I was really glad when he, when he accepted that role because it, it, it increased. Because it's like LA Confidential where I was just holding out for Guy Pierce to be in a comic book film. <laughs> uh, and and I, I appreciate him taking the role in Iron Man 3. Kevin Bacon was one of those holdouts in this film for me. Like, come on. Like everybody else. <laughs> and again, the accents in this movie are just amazing. I don't know how authentic they are, but they're just uh, – they just sell the performances. Um. Well, what I find is that there's a there's a sort of blanket Louisiana accent, and then there's a specific New Orleans accent, and uh, you mix the two up at your peril. But my well, except for Clay Shaw, of course, he's sort of got this a little bit more refined, sort of upper crust type of accent. Yes, very southern, but I don't. It never struck me as being typical. Or specifically Louisiana, or for that matter, New Orleans, but I don't know. Yeah, it's really funny because at the beginning of the movie when Joe Pesci's introduced, you're like, God, that hair is fake. And then you realize later in the film that, yes, it is indeed a wig. So, Right, yeah. And um, now I've always kind of wondered, you know, Pesci had to had to base his performance on something. I doubt it was invented completely out of whole cloth so it did kind of make me wonder you know is there audio of the of the real life david fairy out there somewhere you know video or something because you can it's hard to find but you can actually find recordings of interviews with clay shaw and stuff like that they're hard to find but they are out there but it did kind of make me wonder about david fairy well stone had the resources i mean you know this this is a multi-million dollar film that's true uh, well, you know, hmm. it, it, it's really, <laughs> it's really funny watching Kevin Bacon talk about the homosexual underworld, as he calls it. But and at the time, again, this goes back to authenticity. That's what it was. I mean, yes, this is one of those things that society, we all knew it was it was there, but it's like, I say we, I wasn't around back then, but it's like people knew that the, that people like this were around, they were there. But it was that, I don't know, that subculture that dare not raise its head, you know? Well, it was still illegal in most areas, so. Oh, yeah, that's a good you, point. I didn't, you, yeah. you, do, you, do, you don't want to go to jail, so. Uh, but that gets into a, a whole other line of conversation that we probably don't really want to get into. Let's stick to conspiracy theories and not the. Yeah, because that's so much less offensive to people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with you, actually. Um, and I love that Cuban actor, dude. <laughs> yes. I put a Texan in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just, like, I've met Cubans, never, very few of them are that pissed off and angry, but 
Certainly not about Castro, but um, good lord. But the, again, there's an authenticity to it. I, I don't know. There's just a, there's a fucking truth to it that um, I don't know. I just I believe it. I don't know. It is scenes like this, though. Well, not necessarily like that, but it seems like this, though, that really make if like somebody watched this and totally bought into it, I could see it because. Pesci is so convincing in his performance of explaining how they could do it. And you hear a story like that and then it actually, then it actually happens. I mean, you know, I, I've been to some bizarre parties where people, well, we've never really talked about killing the president, but where people have like these bizarre plans in their heads, like we're going to, we're going to rob an armored car or something like that. And I don't know why that is. Maybe I just hung out with the wrong crowd. In I'm starting to think maybe you did. Yeah. <laughs> but still, you know, like, I've been to parties where conversations like this happen, so it felt very real to me. Well, bear in mind, you know, the first time I saw this movie, the idea of going to any kind of, like, party. I mean, I, keep in mind, dude, I mean, I was, like, 10 or 11 when this movie yeah. came out. And so, like, I went to fucking, I went to birthday parties, but that's, a, you know, that's about it. You know, They were at McDonald's. Yeah. And needless there to say, there weren't Cubans talking about putting a Texan in the White House. Especially not back then. There weren't. No way. Um, but, you know, that was uh, actually something that I didn't like immediately because I, I always again, it kind of went back to the fact that, you know, I always wondered, you know, again, if you were if you were formulating a conspiracy, why would you talk to anybody about it that could potentially give you up if you're not 100 percent sure of this guy's loyalty? The last thing you're going to do is is say anything that could implicate you later on. No matter, even if you know, God forbid. What if Kennedy were to die from natural causes, and you just spent the entire night before talking about how easy it would be to slip poison into somebody's food, and it looks like they die from natural causes? I mean, it's if 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 I was determined to do it, I would be. Actually, I wouldn't do it, but I would imagine that somebody who was determined to do it would be very particular about who they have those conversations with. You know, it, another thing that feels very real to me is Kevin Bacon's monologue here, because I don't know about you. I've run into people like this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and the, the funny thing is, is that when I watched this as an adult, uh, when I bought this DVD and was watching it and he starts talking about how Kennedy stole the election, I'm like, you know, we really have no grasp of history in this country because the whole thing with Bush and and uh, Gore in 2000 seemed like it was the first time anything like that had ever happened in the United States. And it's like, no, no, crap like that happens in the past. We just forget about it because we weren't around. So, Right. Yeah, I, I, uh, I tend to I love him coming on to Jim Garrison at the end of that scene. Yeah, and <laughs> like, and the thing is, again, you know, I don't know if you've ever been hit on by a gay person before, but I have. And like the thing is, like a, that this took place in a, a in a time in American history where coming on to the wrong person of the same sex could get you, well, I don't know what at the very least, maybe get you punched in the head or something. And Garrison, my reading of that is that he he probably wouldn't do that, but I mean that's the kind of thing that you don't solicit unless you're sure, you know. 
Okay, I know we've got this nice little scene going on in the foreground. Are are you creeped out by the reindeer and the snowman in the background as much as I am? <laughs> no, I mean I've been to New Orleans. That stuff happens all the time. Okay, <laughs> that's that's totally. No- I, you you've seen their little funeral procession later on in the movie, yeah. right? Again, I wonder stuff- how much of the, the the film's budget went to that dude that dude's mustache? Because I'm thinking half a- of it. That's <laughs> that guy owns the mustachery. Yeah. <laughs> This is one of the scenes that is extended in the director's cut. Uh, they put a lot more. Again, this is a scene where you have several people sitting around a table talking, and yet it's gripping. It's gripping from beginning to end. Well, and, and the thing is, they actually are showing you something at every step of the way. I mean, you know, if it really was just a bunch of guys in suits sitting in front of a table, then yeah, I think it would be a Tarantino film. Yeah, Sorry, I didn't. I, uh, gee, I didn't even think. I didn't even finish that before. You know what? Damn it! You're right. But let's face it. Uh, Oliver Stone ain't Tarantino, and no. the entire t- for better or for worse. And so, um, but the entire time they're showing you stuff, and it they're giving you these sort of glimpses and glances at things, and it it just it, it keeps your interest going. You know, you're squinting and saying, "Oh, hey, run it back! I didn't get a good look at that." Well, there's a reason that you didn't get a good look at it, but. Um, oh, and here's one. Like, Susie comes to the table, and so everybody stands up because a woman yeah. has just, like, a lady has. And, I mean, dude, you've been in the South long enough. I'm sure you've seen that before. Where, um, and so it's just those little bits of, uh, of history, of authenticity that just makes it so. Well, it's, it's one of the social mores of the time. Men wore hats, and when you entered a building, you took the hat off. If a lady entered. Uh, you know, or or if anybody entered, I mean, uh, freaking Peter Mayhew talks about the fact that he was raised as a proper British uh, British lad. So comes in the room, you stand up, and that's how that's one of the reasons he got the role of Chewbacca. So you know, it's just that's one hell of an audition, right? Um, uh, I feel so bad for Wayne Knight. Instead, wear those pants so high up that's got to be uncomfortable sitting down. Oh, you, you got to figure he probably left it unbuttoned or something. That'd be my move. Chunky man problems. Yeah. So, you know, there's another interesting bit here where, you know, at different points you see Garrison. He's leaning forward, leaning back, turning his head, and you can see the reflection in his glasses. And I remember it's so thinking, awesome. Yeah, and like it's a, such a small detail now, but at the time I only remember seeing movies where people, like when people wore glasses in movies. They had the frames, but they didn't actually have lenses in them. Mm-hmm. And the idea of having somebody wearing glasses that actually you can see the reflections of light and the distortion of the lens and everything. This was not done in cinema, you know, back in, you know, back in, you know, when JFK came out. And there was so much about this movie that looked different from everything else that was out there at the time. But that, is, and it's because I wore glasses at the time that I noticed stuff like that. But it that was one of the things that just stood out to me from the get-go, that this was not just another Hollywood schlock fest. That whether I agreed with it or not in the end, there there are ideas present in this movie that... Yeah. The, the whole background here with Oswald's military record would actually come up and strum up a little bit of controversy and, of all things, Quantum Leap. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Donald P. Belisario, who created Quantum Leap, served with Lee Harvey Oswald wow. in the military. Wow, I didn't know that. So his take was Oswald did it. And so the season, the, the season premiere of the final season of Quantum Leap, uh, which happened in 92, 
uh, was basically, it's almost one of the worst episodes of the series because it's less about Sam Beckett and more about Donald P. Belisario telling us that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was the only shooter. <laughs> no. In where Oswald, Sam as Oswald, is on, in a military, like a, in a map room, and he talks to a either a corporal or whatever Belisario or a captain and that's Donald that's the meeting between the two because Donald P. Belisario was basically like look I met Lee Harvey Oswald I know Lee Harvey Oswald he did it and Oliver Stone should shut up so it's kind of fascinating well and that and that's actually something else you know this when uh, Oliver Stone was making this movie he had access to people who at least claimed to have met these people yeah. And the thing about that that's always worked for me is that there are very few times in American history, because when you think about it, as far as like, I guess, uh, as far as technology, budget, uh, history and everything, there's only a very narrow window of time when you could do this the way Oliver Stone wanted to do it. Yeah. And primarily with consultation from... Uh, you know, those eyewitnesses or those people connected to the case or, or whoever else. And it was possible to meet people who met Lee Harvey Oswald face-to-face -face and could at least give you their impressions of the man. I don't know if that's possible even now, but it was starting to not become possible anymore even when they made this movie, but it wasn't until about the time this movie was made that you could make a sort of a conspiracy theory type of movie. It's just this, you know, I mean, Oliver Stone should thank his lucky stars because he, they really were in proper alignment where he could get the money for it. He could, he, you know, there was a, there was actually an audience for this type of movie, but he still had the access to, you know, uh, the historical figures that he would need to talk to and interview in order to make his film. And it's 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 rare when it happens, but you know, and I think Titanic is another movie that could not have been made any earlier or any later than it was. But it was yeah. that same exa that exact sweet spot that it was it was possible to do that. Even four or five years later, I don't think he could have done it. And same thing with this. You know, it's. I, I'm very glad that Laurie Metcalf ended up to be part of the cast of Roseanne because she was on a successful television series for, you know, over four or five seasons. Mm -hmm. And as an actor in Hollywood, that's like what you want, especially if you're a television actor. Right. But it's a shame she didn't do more dramatic work in movies because she was excellent in this movie. And she's in another movie called Internal Affairs that had Richard Gere and... Um, I don't want to say Jerry Garcia. Who is that actor? Who was also in uh, The Untouchables. And why am I forgetting his name? Was he in. Wait, do you mean like Adrian Garcia or Andy Garcia? Yeah, Andy Garcia. That's the one. Uh, where she was his partner. She was just excellent in that film, too. So seeing her in this, where, to be fair, she's, you know, she's Captain Expository in the scene. So she's just basically. But exposition as Kermit the Frog said, has to go somewhere. But also, if you develop, deliver exposition with enough conviction and enough talent, you can make it more than just giving information. Um, Donald Sutherland wasn't available for comment there, but yeah. <laughs> the part of the film that no matter what I'm doing, if I'm just having this on in the background and working on something, that is the part that will be coming up too soon that I will stop doing everything I'm doing to watch. Gary uh, um, Oldman is a freaking chameleon, you know that? Uh, yeah, he really... Uh, this Look, 
keep in mind how old I was when this movie came out. This was the first time I'd seen him in anything. I hadn't seen uh, Sid and Nancy or anything else that he did. I think, had he done Immortal Beloved by this point, or was that later? Uh, Immortal Beloved? Yeah, he was Beethoven? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think he was Dracula by this point. Oh, he was? All right, well, this was the first movie that I saw him in. And so I thought, I don't understand why everybody's losing their mind over the fact that this sort of nondescript-looking guy with this sort of funny accent, why they're getting so excited about it. And then he did some other movie, and I swear to think, it, it might have been Dracula that I saw it, and I almost did not recognize him. And then I saw him in The Fifth Element, almost didn't, <laughs> certainly not by his voice did I recognize him in The Fifth Element. That was the most realistic Texan accent I've ever heard in film. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the performance, you can you could never get a cast like this today. There's just no way. I'm, and she's actually kind of good looking, this chick who plays Marina. She's actually, anyway, but you could never get a cast like this today where you have so many superstars and heavy hitters that, and even, even the uh, supporting, uh, uh, even the supporting cast is made up of character actors as opposed to, I don't know, just sort of, just kind of journeyman day players, right? Yeah. And it just there's just the star power this this film has. I mean, because and the thing it's easy to forget now, man. But this movie came out, dude. Kevin Costner was cream of the crop. He could do yeah, whatever. Yeah, he was huge. I mean, I mean, Robin Hood. You know, he took a lot of hits for Robin Hood, but Which you know, I like. Uh, I enjoy the film. Uh, Bull Durham, No Way Out, uh, Silverado, yeah, Dances with Wolves. I mean, this was his. He was he was one of Hollywood's elite. So him being cast in this film, it was almost no brainer. You know, it's it's really strange. Uh, going back just a little bit, when that woman, that older woman, comes into the the boarding house room and says, "Would you like to look at TV?" Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like that's authentic, because people talk like that. <laughs> well, especially you know, um, as somebody who's trying, who probably only knows Russian, or speaks Russian fluently, but she knows English words kind of, yeah. and can maybe string a few. I could see somebody talking to him like that. Yeah, I mean, again, authenticity. This movie has it in spades. God, it's so good. The cutting here is just amazing. Well, right. And the thing is, as we're going through every single step of this, you know, what we've seen, I have not commented, is them actually putting together this, what some people think is a falsified document or, or photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald ho holding, what news, that was Pravda? Yeah, I think so. Uh, okay. And uh, and also with the uh, holstered pistol, and then he's holding the uh, the rifle, somebody faking that in a photo lab as, you know, all these people are talking to one another. Indicating that you know this whole thing was invented out of whole cloth, it was just fabricated from the ground up, literally. And you don't really understand that that's what people are doing until you get to that final angle where they hold up the picture and you're like, oh. And it, the whole sequence is just cut together. I mean, I I don't know if anyone won an Oscar for editing in this movie, but if they didn't, they got fucking robbed. Simple as that. You know, this blonde woman, uh, one of the witnesses. What's really great is the cutting back. Do you ever watch Cold Case? No. Okay. Uh, it, it's an interesting show because it's them 
digging up old murders and trying to solve them. So sometimes you like all, all the way to the thirties sometimes. And when it's like, like the nineties and they show like the person back then and the person in the present, it's a lot. Uh, I think they took their cue from this film because this blonde woman in the flashbacks is all excited and happy and everything in the present is dour and depressing. And, and I just, I, I know that that's the natural course of, of, you know, before a, a national tragedy. And I think one of the things this film kind of talks about, but doesn't really talk about is how much Kennedy's death fundamentally changed this country. Uh, just, you know, we had had assassinations in the past, but this was the first assassination in the modern, the then modern era to where it was, you know, Lincoln was killed in a theater and word had to travel for that to get out to the rest of the country because, you know, you just, you didn't have television and all that here. It was nationally broadcasted seconds after it happened. And then we saw the death of his assassin. So, and and and, that, but you know, I I think that there was a lot of people who got lulled into a false sense of security after the end of the, um, the war, world war two. Where we are in utopia now. This is it. Uh, nothing bad's ever going to happen to us. The good guys won. Blah blah blah. And I can only imagine how bad the the death of Kennedy must have pissed in their cornflakes. You know. You know, faith in the country. And it's not like everything was great. I mean, you had institutional racism. You had, you know, just you know, like a bunch of other kind of not nice things happening under the current, but the, the, but the perception of, especially coming into the fifties, because, and I think you've talked about this on your various shows and I have too, that a decade does not start at the beginning of the decade. Mm-mm. What the decade is remembered for happens two or three years into the decade. So this was in many ways, like the end of the fifties and, and everything that that kind of represented. I tend to agree. Um, and it's kind of funny, you know, when you when you look back at it, the '60s died a very quick death. Yes. It didn't, I, but because I think the '70s began a little bit early, you know, in that <laughs> in that little continuum. Because when you think about it, a lot of shit had to happen in the '70s, you know, so it, it needed to get that little bit of an early start. The other thing is, so much happened in the '60s, it needed to get an early conclusion, because otherwise, we're looking at Armageddon. So (laughs) there's just not much left, you know, and um, but this is one of those sort of defining moments that people look and I kind of wonder, you know, is this the moment when people lost faith in their government or do people or have people lost faith in their government because people look back at this media primarily and say this is the moment when people lost faith in their government? You know, is it the chicken or the egg, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, to be fair, you know, you had this and then in 74 you had Watergate. And then I, I think more people lost their faith, the, the, the faith in their government, uh, at least in the United States, uh, when Nixon resigned than anything else, which is why everything was so free. Everything was so freaking dour up until Star Wars. I mean, Jaws to the Jaws to the exception, because Jaws was a blockbuster film, but Jaws was about a killer shark. So it's not like the feel good movie of 1975. No, it wasn't. Uh, but when you look at movies like, you know. The Godfather, which glorifies, uh, you know, killers, essentially. And you have, you know, in, in like in science fiction, you have Silent Running and you have Planet of the Apes and you have 
the Omega Man and all that. It's all these like dark, depressing things where really at the end of the decade, you know, and, and I won't say Star Wars was the, the first salvo across the board, but it was one of those moments where, you know, culture and society started to feel good about itself again. So I, I think I think the Kennedy assassination was kind of like a sad thing. And then you had, you know, Robert Kennedy and then you had Martin Luther King. Right. Uh, assassinated later on. And it was just like and then you had like the general. 60s in general, because when people think of the 60s, they're really talking about like a finite period of time. And most of that happened in 1968. So there's that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's just one of those things where the perception of something is so different from the reality of it. And, but I think really after the, basically 1968 couldn't have happened if Kennedy wasn't assassinated in 1963. You know, and it's like, on the one hand, I kind of want to argue with that, but when you think about it, a lot of what defined um, 1968 came from the anti-war movement. And speculation goes that Kennedy wouldn't have more deeply involved us in Vietnam. I don't know. I mean, I think it's one of those things that's it's unknown and it's unknowable. I think you could argue that based on at least what we have access to, you could make an argument on that either way. But what I you know, I'm sorry, do what? Not that I was I took a drink. I apologize. It was a little loud, I guess. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I know. I thought you were uh, saying, well, actually, and, or something. OK, well, that's fine. Um, no, I completely lost my train of thought. Oh well. Anyway, so but right now we're we're in this scene with the Carousel Club and this. I keep wanting to call her Mae West. I know that's not who she is, but damn. <laughs> it's not a bad comparison, though. So it's kind of sad. It was it, it was interesting to see a '60s era strip club. Uh, boy, was that uncomfortable sitting next to my mom when I was 15. Um, so, but you know. Like, at what point am I going to be asked to leave the room? But I guess it wasn't that bad. <laughs> so. But, you know, this is this is where we're we're, we're seeing the, the kind of, you know, Jack Ruby's involvement in everything and kind of, <laughs> I don't know whether justified or not, it kind of disparages the man pretty hardcore throughout the course of the scene, making him seem kind of a violent person. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you can only really uh, go after somebody for defaming your good name if you had a good name to begin with. And when you're you're caught on national TV shooting somebody, I think it's pretty hard to make something like that stand up in court. I had a good reputation until these guys showed up, except for that one Sunday morning. But I had a good reputation, you know. And oh, so, here here's the real life Jim Garrison right here, and Brian Doyle Murray kind of sharing a scene together. So. The the funny thing about the real life Jim Garrison playing Earl Warren is you see how his eyes kind of wandering. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jim Garrison looks like my maternal grandfather. <laughs> really? Gl- glasses, wandering eye, hair, everything. <laughs> That's what Granddaddy looked like. And it is kind of funny, like one of those. I don't know, uh, maybe historical ironies that of everybody he could have had a cameo appearance as it was it's Earl Warren. I mean, it could have been anybody. And honestly, you know, something else, it, you know, this is the first time I can really remember seeing, um, 
anything really from uh, Brian, Do- Brian Doyle Murray, um, who was – I don't know. I just – I loved – I guess I just like his presence, you know, his voice. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, he's not a, he's not a, a, a scene stealer. But at the same time, there's a – I don't know. There's just a quality to it I, I love. I think a lot of people don't really realize how big he was in the 70s. You know, Caddyshack was – he was like one of the driving forces behind Caddyshack. He has a small role in the film. Mm-hmm. And his his brother, Bill Murray, you know, went on to be, you know, not arguably. He is the bigger star. Bill who? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Brian Doyle Murray was like a, a solid comedic writer and actor during that during that time period. And, and, and just basically seemed to go – outside of roles like this or, you know, his, his one episode of, uh, Lois and Clark. Uh, and this is one of those parts of the film that actually sort of, uh, irritates me now as a conspiracy theory skeptic, because the very shooting that they say, it's just as far as logistics, you cannot shoot this gun this fast. In fact, you can. And, you know that uh, yeah, there's a Texas live oak tree down at the bottom of um, the building that would have partially obscured Lee Harvey Oswald's shot. Which, as far as, as and as far as I know, you know the uh, consensus opinion seems to be that he in fact missed his first shot. So there's that. But it, it just it, it it it's one of those things. I think I I understand what Stone is trying to go for here, and you know uh, laying out alternative explanations and scenarios to things, but. You know, this is just one of those things. If you've ever handled any kind of bolt-action rifle in your life, it's not as difficult and cumbersome as they make it look in the movie. And it just kind of speaks to me of, you know, I know they're trying to illustrate a point, but I almost want to accuse them of having a bias here that they intentionally do it so slowly, you know, that whole um, bolt-action motion, they do it so slowly to sort of artificially convince you that you cannot do this this much – uh, that type of shooting that fast, I just I don't buy it. You know, I really well, don't. You 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 can't confuse people with facts when you're trying to put your theory forward. Uh, I mean that, that that that's true of any anybody explaining. <sighs> to get into another conspiracy theory, the moon landing, and I won't take any time, won't take a whole lot of time on that because that's a rabbit hole. But yeah, I, I watched a special lunch on National Geographic that was one of the most beautiful takedowns of all of the conspiracy theories about the moon landing ever, because it's one of the, the, the best way to deal with a conspiracy theory is to let the crackpots talk and then bring in the people that actually know what they're talking about to explain what was going on. History Channel did the same thing with the, the 9-11 truthers, where they let, they let Alex Jones and everybody have their say, and then they're like, no, 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 no this is how physics works. Uh, and you, you watch these guys trying to explain how certain things could happen uh, or couldn't happen. And they have these things where they have it in their mind so hardcore that this is how it can be because they have empirical evidence, like physical evidence in their hands that this is how it works. That if you try to confuse them with somebody coming up, taking the rifle out of Oliver Stone's hand and showing him how fast you could do it, he would still go, well, Lee Harvey Oswald couldn't do that. So you, you can't confuse conspiracy people with facts. It's just it, – it, it's counter to their entire worldview. Though it would have been funny to see somebody snatch the rifle out of his hands and show him how it worked. It would. 
<laughs> but as far as this film's uh, narrative is concerned, the um, I think we're at a point in the film now where Garrison is starting to get a pretty good idea. If, and I mean this from the point of view of you know a conspiracy of some kind. He's starting to get a pretty good idea of what he's really up against as far as putting together a case. And um, he doesn't seem – there's – I don't know. He, I, guess, I guess you could call it he, – he, he seems kind of stoic about it. You know, he's very – Well, he's approaching it like he would any other murder in yeah, uh, now we get to the funeral sequence. Or this, well, it's a procession. It's not actually a funeral itself, but this is the procession. And I've seen these types of things go on in uh, Louisiana and, or specifically New Orleans, or Nolans, as the uh, natives call it. Nolans, yeah. And um, this is about what it looks like. You have people singing and dancing in the streets, and it's 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 just it's very that that city has a vibe all on its own, and either you get it. Or you you don't get it, and if you don't get it, you get out. It attracts people that want to live below sea level. So, right there, when you have made the conscious decision to live level, there's a little something up, anyways. I mean, I'm not insulting the people of New Orleans or the people of Louisiana because I've met many of them. They're fine, upstanding, you know, citizens. But still, there's just something. I, I guess it's just how my head works. If it's just like, okay, I can live anywhere. But I'm going to live a place that's guaranteed to get flooded. Yeah, the soup to, bowl. To where you can't bury people, you know? Yeah. So maybe that's just weird. Maybe I'm just strange. Maybe I just offended every one of your listeners who lives in Louisville. <laughs> I love the fact that they're talking about killing the president and there's a little kid running around with a rifle shooting people. <laughs> yeah. And again, I mean, there's all this. Frank Whaley. <laughs> Of all people to have in your cameo, Frank, which makes sense because Stone worked with him on the doors. Well, that, but uh, my understanding was that um, he only came in for like two or three days worth of stuff because it was mostly as a favor uh, to Stone. He was actually on his way to do something else, and uh, he had the right kind of haircut for it, so it was just – it was ready-made. And so, um, yeah, I don't think – was this in the – the theatrical cut, this bit right here with the salesman, or, or not? I don't remember. Uh, it's like there, there's like specific things, like scenes are extended, like the scene at the restaurant where they're putting together Oswald as a person, and Mr. X's scene coming up uh, was extended for the director's cut. And there's a whole thing with John Larroquette that we'll get to later in the film. Oh, yeah. Um and uh, we'll get to the other scene they put in the director's cut that I actually had to have explained to me by during the commentary. Uh, but uh, I think I think all of these bits here probably had little bits of extra stuff because I'm sure the studio wanted him to cut as well because they're they're a big movie studio and that's what they like to do. They very rarely let people have their three hour opuses because that's hard to put in the theaters even at this point. I mean, you couldn't. Three-hour films are few and far between nowadays. I mean, we're getting to the point where action films are, like big tentpole action films are a little longer than they used to be. Mm -hmm. But a film like this, it's just like, well, you know, we got to put asses in the seats. So Well, and the other angle is that I think a lot of movie studios, they'll let you have a three-hour movie or three-and-a-half-hour movie. 
And I think a lot of movie studios will let you have an R-rated movie. But there are very few movie studios out there that will let you have a three and a half hour R-rated movie. I mean, dude, you got to give them something, you know? <laughs> exactly. And with that, I'm going to abandon Michael Bailey for just a few moments while I go outside and have a smoke. I'm turning all of my content over to him because I am nicking like you just wouldn't believe. So, uh, But at least this time when I take a smoke break, I've got somebody to cover for me. So Scott Gardner can't criticize me this time. So. <laughs> Um, anyway, I'm muting myself. I'll be right back, all right? Okay. Uh, no, nah, th- this is another one of those scenes where everyone's just kind of sitting around and talking uh, with the intercuts of, you know, the the actual events, according to Oliver Stone. I, I'm <sighs> Gary Oldman, it, I, you know, I would go as far to say that just about much credit as they should for this film. Because, I mean, I, I have yet to see a lazy performance out of anybody. And uh, I don't know if it was, if we were actually doing the commentary or if it was, you know, the chit chat before the show. But, you know, Kevin Costner is one of those actors that I really like as an actor. But his better roles are those roles where the director actually made him do something. Like, if you kind of have him in with a director that just doesn't make him work all that much, yeah, he's going to kind of turn in, turn in a boring performance. But, you know, with this one where it was said where, you know, he's the linchpin of the entire movie and he is the, you know, he is the central character. You, you can, he kind of had to work hard to begin with, but then you have to add the accent and the mannerisms and everything. He's just, you know... You know, when people insult Kevin Costner as an actor, I, I honestly wonder if they've ever actually seen this movie because it's such a, it's such a tour de force for him. Uh, if it, one of the things you might notice, if you're actually watching the film, because uh, there seems to be some, I don't want to say uh, controversy or controversy. I'm not even going to say that controversy over uh, whether people who listen to fan commentaries actually watch the film while they're doing it. Uh, but you notice that his hair is subtly starting to go gray, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I wonder how many people who only know Michael Rooker from The Walking Dead would think of him in this movie, or maybe only know him as the uh, the Lex Luthor character in Mallrats. Uh, it was really funny coming back to this film after seeing Mallrats and seeing a movie called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer uh, that I really started to respect him as an actor. Just an, just an amazing thing. You know, how many Harrisons have? I mean, this is like several years later, and none of them seem to have grown up. So, ah, ah, movie magic. What are you going to do? Uh, the um, more of New Orleans pageantry here uh, during the Easter parade, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I, I do want to apologize if I came off insulting to to New Orleans in my earlier comments. I've never been there, so I don't really have a good, you know, fix on it. Uh, on the TV, Garrison is watching uh, news footage about the the um, ramp up in, in military involvement in Vietnam, uh, which not only ties to this film, but also ties to one of his early films, uh, born on the 4th of July. So, you know, that was that was a sticking point of that generation, but it seemed to be particularly a sticking point of this director. And the uh, now we're seeing the family strife of Jim Garrison having to 
give up going to the Easter thing. I do think it's funny, though, that he refers to it as a tribal ritual. I I don't know if they're Catholic, and I wouldn't want to assume that the garrisons are Catholic just because they're in New Orleans. But it's just kind of funny that, you know, myself growing up Catholic, if, if, if my during Easter, if anybody had ever referred to it as a tribal ritual, I mean, it's not like we would have burned them at the stake, but it just seemed like it would have been like a bigger deal. I mean, him missing Easter in and of itself is a big deal. And I guess the other people really don't have family uh, to speak of. God, Tommy Lee Jones is so good in this film. And in this scene in particular. I'm back, Absolutely. by the way. No, I was, uh, I don't know if you were back in time to hear. It's interesting. I, I, I'm guessing Jim Garrison's Catholic. And mm-hmm. maybe that's maybe that's a, a wrong assumption to make just because he's in New Orleans that he'd be Catholic. But he refers to Easter Sunday as a tribal ritual. <laughs> yeah, that's always kind of, I mean, even if you don't buy into it, that's one of those things that I thought, saying that to somebody who does, I always thought that was a little insensitive. <laughs> At the very least, so yeah, like, but you know, I guess he's in big enough trouble that he's missing missing the Easter celebration itself. But to call it a tribal ritual, I mean, his wife strikes me as someone that that would really piss her off. So, <laughs> and again, we're getting a, a flashback here of, um, and I can't, I'm blanking on the Willie O'Keefe paying a visit to a Clay Shaw, and he's basically a prostitute. Really, is is what he's at least claims he he was there to do, um, and. This is one of those – I can't even use the word authentic because what the hell do I know about prostitutes? But um, I guess just the performances of it, um, I don't know. It's just it, – it has this weird, creepy, just – I don't know, just quality to it. And at the same time, there's an ambiguity. I don't – there's a – I'm I'm really doing a shit job of explaining what exactly the scene is, but it's like it's one of those things that when you watch it, you get well, the sense this guy's a real slime ball. Here's but, the here's the thing, and, and and this is knowing a a vast variety of humanity in my life is that when it comes to people's sexual preferences, and I'm not just talking like gay or straight, you know, I, I'm talking just in general of what people are into. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, we don't really talk about it and because of societal norms and all that, I, I'm just assuming that I just default that most people are that, – that there is a section of humanity that is just into some really weird sh- – so what I would think is is that even though this is, you know, a, a, a gay prostitute coming to uh, Clay Shaw's house – that I, I'm pretty sure that there are people uh, like women going to rich men's houses where they're just there's just some weird shit going on. Yeah, like so, eyes wide shut kind of stuff. You know? Yeah, that kind of thing where it's just like you know you're dinner because that's what that dude's into, and and here you know everyone's cosplaying and you know it's just you know I really appreciate uh, Tommy Lee Jones going for the Golden Age Flash look. Uh, that was uh, that's kind of impressive, but um. God, well, not weird. well, not so much like the preferences, because like as you say, there are, you know, different people. Different people are into different things, but no more. Um, I guess the way it's 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 manifest. Where I think Oliver Stone in his commentary on this, he said that it's not so much about gay or straight, because if it had been, 
you know, female hookers and it would have been, you know, female hookers. But there's a there, there's just this roughness to it. There's it's just that's a brutal world. Um, and I guess my reading of Clay Shaw, somebody that I obviously never met, but just as a historical figure to me, he always gave me the impression that conspiracy theory or no, he's the type that would be open to it. You know, uh, he's mm-hmm. he just he, my reading of him, especially as colored as it has to be by this movie, he would if there if there had been a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, it if it, it there's just no way this guy wouldn't have had something to do with it. If not him, somebody just like him. And it's just again, it's one of those things that I kind of have to give the conspiracy theorists points for is that. You know, if you have to point the finger at somebody, a guy that has, um, I've what was mostly a very fascist type of uh, yeah. uh, leanings. It's it's eminently believable that it he could not necessarily did, but he might. You know, and, and like I say, if there was a conspiracy, I could totally believe that he or somebody just like him would have been one of the ringleaders of it. It's not a stretch at well, all. Well, it, it, it's it's a dominant personality. You know, just just in and that can go on to like every aspect of his life. So it's why and it's kind of funny. And maybe this is just how my mind works, because. Pretty cynical about humanity in the in general is that you, you, you hear something like weird about these people and what they're into. I almost always believe it, not because I I want to see them fall or anything, but just because I just believe humanity's kind of screwed up anyways. But yeah, that, that kind of dominant, forceful, and I think you, you said the word, brutal type of, type of person. You kind of have to be to be the ringleader of bringing down a president. Right. You know, this isn't we're going to go kill our neighbor or we're just going to kill some random homeless person because who cares about them? You know, this this is, you know, and, and it's it's kind of funny that Oliver Stone at the same time has uh, Clay Shaw, you know, kind of cast doubt on his own involvement. But also that question, if. I was in the CIA and I had something to do with the president's murder. Do you think I would even be talking to you right now? And his response to that, well, you just think you can walk between the raindrops, which is a great line. I love that line. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's another good one coming in just a few seconds. Mm -hmm. One may smile and smile and be a villain. That is such a good line. Isn't that Shakespearean? Uh-huh, like Hamlet, or Mac- either Hamlet or Macbeth. I always get those fucking plays mixed up. But Tommy Lee Jones is just such an effective actor in general. I mm-hmm. mean, he, I wouldn't say he's quite the chameleon that Gary Oldman is, but I've rarely, um, unless he's playing the same character, like, you know, his character from The Fugitive, and then in the sequel, you're going to have something similar. That's completely different to him being Two-Faced, to him being in Volcano, to him being in this film, to him being in uh, probably what I think is one of his finer performances, was Lonesome Dove. Oh, that was a good one. Well, and the thing about this performance that um, really makes makes it work for me is that, you know, outwardly, very even-tempered, very level-headed, uh, manners to the hilt, right? And, mm-hmm. I'm, and, and I'm sure you know, like in the South, 
manners really are a big deal. They matter. I mean, you know, in in some of the areas, not as much, but no, it, it's it, even even to this day, that kind of proper way of doing something, you I know, mean, dude, it, just... it, it, it freaked my wife out. Pennsylvania. Let me put it to you that way. Oh, really? Wow. Having been born, you know, she she like nodded to people in the grocery store, and they all but like grabbed their children and ran. Just because that's just not what you do in, in Virginia and Pennsylvania. So, well, the um, it, it's just the moment, and even as a kid, I this the significance of this was not lost on me. Guy basically gets hauled into the district attorney's office and is almost accused not just of murder. Not just of killing President Kennedy, but engineering a conspiracy. And then on oh, his way out the door, he makes a point of stopping and wishing everybody and their families a, um, a happy Easter. And I was thinking, you know, I realize, and even as a kid, I mean, I knew that manners matter. But, you know, maybe I've just got a different disposition than most. If somebody's going to make that type of accusation to me. Wishing them a happy Easter is not going to be the first thing that comes out of my mouth, I can assure you. Now, I, I, was, I really didn't want to ever, you know, try to bring in the how would this thing be handled today. But, man, just, just him getting this far into his investigation without the press getting involved. Out of the question. Is out of the question today. Yeah. Um. You would have every talking head on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. I mean, all all of the major outlets would have people talking about this. Well, look how long it took for that 9-11 truther douchebag to get his little theory put out there. And by the way, look, if you guys happen to believe in that whole 9-11 truth inside job bullshit, loose change, look, I don't really know what to tell you. It's it's a rabbit hole for, you know, I guess another episode, but I just – I you will never convince me of that. <laughs> for um, for honestly, for many of the same reasons that I don't buy into a, a conspiracy theory to kill President Kennedy, so I regard basically both of those as being equally strange theories and extremes and whatnot. But but to kind of go back to my point though, look how long it didn't take for that guy just yeah. stitching video together, usually out of context, stitching a bunch of video together. How little effort he needed to get his name put out there. Yeah, I mean it's just you know with not only the the, the the 24-hour news cycle because uh, at this point at like 11 at 12 o'clock at night most stations turned off like there was snow yeah. <laughs> you know they played the national anthem and that was it for the day you know and now you have to you have to find stuff to fill the cycle with but with youtube and you know it's just like you could you can sit there and watch a person and they're talking about president obama right mm-hmm. and they're laying out their problems with president obama and you're like wow this is kind of a rational well put out thought and then they bring in the lizard people and you realize that it's just like oh we just took a right turn straight to crazy town very good and it's just like <sighs> And and my biggest problem with any kind of conspiracy, you know, this is this is my litmus test for conspiracy theorists. If they're sitting there explaining their their theory to me, and they ever use the words, "Now I don't know about you," but that is where I, I shut down, because then they are saying, "If you're smart, you'll believe what I say." So f you, basically. I can't go home. Yeah, this is another. We're actually getting into a very. Yeah, I just love it. He hits. The, <laughs> and it's oh, this is Joe Pesci, dude. I, you know, the quotable Joe Pesci from JFK. This is uh, 
Oh, what a what tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. It's fun and games, man. It's fun and games. I've been doing this shit for years. Yeah. It's like he is playing the character from Lethal Weapon to its natural evil, angry. Yeah, like uh, this is his. Uh, yeah, this is Leo Getz's angry, pissed off older brother, the guy that got in trouble with the law. This is yeah. what. This is like Leo Getz's cautionary tale, like who he could have been. You know. <laughs> I love the paranoia here, looking at every door, and that you know, I, I gotta say, and, and, and maybe I've been in some crappy hotels, and I always, and maybe it's because I, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on this. I just watch a lot, a lot of or, Law and Order. When, when, when the when the police put you up in a hotel, it's usually a rat hole. Mm-hmm. This is a really nice suite. <laughs> He's got extra rooms. He's got a little kitchen. I guess maybe they put him in like one of those those like extended stay hotels or something. Yeah, that's all I can come up with. But <laughs> honestly, as best I can tell, this whole sequence of stuff that we're seeing here never actually happened, and he was never yeah in any type of protective custody whatsoever. Well, yeah, when you start looking at the actual historical accuracy of the things that Oliver Stone and, – and you see, that's kind of a problem because I know that Oliver Stone is trying to do two things here. He's trying to tell an entertaining story, but he's also trying to put his theories out there. But it's in the interest of making the story more interesting and more dramatic by adding things that didn't happen. That kind of that kind of undercuts your, your overall theory, doesn't it? Well, I would think so, and I think audiences and to a degree scholars – will tolerate composite characters, right? Yes. Um, like, I forget. Like, Michael Rooker plays a character by the name of Bill Broussard, who's actually a composite of a couple of different real people that did work for Jim Garrison, and a few of them got together and at one point sold them out. And so, but there was no person named Bill Broussard on his staff. It's it's just an amalgamation. Same as there was no Willie O'Keefe. He's a composite of well mostly uh, Perry Russo but then also a couple of other witnesses too because you do have to make a movie and you have to you can't make a one to one analog of every single shady just fucking piece of shit low life that Jim Garrison would have met and believe me there are plenty of them in New Orleans I'm, you stay there for even just a couple of days you're going to get you'll get an eyeful but you know the uh when you start just in, like inventing sequences completely from the ground up and again there's there's a bit coming much later on down the line where Garrison goes to Washington, D.C., and he hears just a bunch of stuff. And that didn't actually happen. The character that's being referenced there, he and Garrison never even met until after the yeah. the trial. And it's one of those things that, you know, I, I can understand. And, and again, it kind of goes back to that word truthiness where there's a sense in which the actual literal events or the propositions being advanced here are they're kind of subservient to the idea of something you know yes and that works except when you start taking this stuff i think a little too seriously and then i think that's when you get into trouble because if you're using this movie as a source for your scholarship it is so (laughs) fucking flawed to begin with I mean, is that, am, I, am I making sense here? Because I feel like I'm. No, no, no. If if if, if you're using this in, in, at the top of your bibliography and your thesis on JFK's assassination, you really just need to qu- drop out of school right now. Immediately go to your local McDonald's and get that manager position that's available. Because that's pretty much all you're worth at that point. 
Right. And I don't know. The and breakdown here that he has that he goes from manic to just a completely broken human being. Pesci sells it so well. Well, and that was something else. I mean, to me, he, his reputation, especially doing things like Casino, mm-hmm. right? I think they say the F word like a certain – that's like a mathematical breakdown where it averages out to like once or twice per minute or something like that. When you – all the fucks and stuff that are in that movie, com, like divided by the runtime, you it works out to one or two fucks per minute. And I was thinking, wow, and you're going to have a profane guy like that in your movie? Like, okay. And he just didn't impress me as an actor until I saw this film. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know, Oliver Stone's a genius because I never would have guessed, you know, so. The uh, the only thing I had seen of him in this before this was uh, My Cousin Vinny. Oh, you didn't see Lethal Weapon? I guess I uh, see. That's the thing is that I will. I, I would have told you for the longest time that the first thing I ever saw Samuel L. Jackson is was uh, Pulp Fiction. But then I'm like, no, I saw Loaded Weapon One in the theater, and I saw Jurassic Park in the theater. So obviously, I saw Samuel L. Jackson, and so and I saw Coming to America. So yeah, he was around. Obviously, I've seen this. So I, I, I guess I didn't put. Lethal Weapon. Well, when did I see Lethal Weapon two? Came out summer of eighty nine. Uh, otherwise, okay. Un- so it would have been it would have been nineteen ninety because HBO would have been showing it every five minutes. Yeah, that was their thing. <laughs> yeah, an, an otherwise forgettable summer nineteen eighty nine. Lethal Weapon two yeah. was the only thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, that's the summer every summer wants to be from now on. I don't know. Two thousand eight was pretty good. Yeah, but that's like the one that came the closest, really. <laughs> as far as I know, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I love this sequence where they figure out that they're they've been bugged. Something you might find interesting. Yeah, this is a a good, and this is actually one of those things. Like, I never actually figured out if this was something that was in Garrison's book and he believed actually happened, or again if this was something that was made up for the film. Um, or, or what, so, but it it does kind of raise the question of, you know, if this happened, who was bugging him and why? And I've, and I've kind of advanced my theory on basically what I think happened. And now is actually, since we're, we're about to come to a little bit of a lull in the movie because he hasn't gone to Washington yet. What do you think? Well, before I get to that. In rewatching this film, because mm-hmm. you can focus on different things, mm-hmm. next next time you want to watch it, watch the dude on the phone's performance while Kevin Costner is delivering his lines. He is totally in the moment. He is not paying attention to what he he's seemingly not paying attention to what Jim Garrison is saying. And the moment he hears that um, Joe Pesci is dead. Like the phone almost drops out of his hand. It's really, it's just really impressive to watch. No, I, I don't know. I've never read Garrison's book. Maybe I. Sh- how much other stuff in my life to read? Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, Jim Garrison and and because there was a couple books that they cited in the opening credits. So, you know, I, I would. I don't know. I guess, <laughs> I guess if you're going to believe in a conspiracy theory involving the government, bugging is not that like out of the question. You know what I'm saying? Right. But well, why would they need to if they have a mole? So it's just, it well, seems like overkill at that point. 
Yeah, and I tend to agree. But hey, fun and games, man. Fun and games. Yeah, but um, I guess eh, you know, I guess your mole can't be there 24-7. I'm just trying to think of the argument from the other side. But I guess your mole wouldn't be able to be there 24-7. But, you know, as far as the death of uh, David Ferry is concerned, Jim, question, uh, Jim Garrison, I should say, he actually raised a pretty good point. You know, uh, and I think his exact words, this is going to, it's, it's going to be close to this, where I guess it's a coincidence that on the night he died of natural causes, David Ferry left two suicide notes. And that kind of hits you between the eyes where you're thinking, okay, well, was this homicide? Was this suicide? Was this natural cause? I mean, we know the fucker's dead, but what got him? And um, so, uh, and just in general, I mean, I don't want to ever die anyways, uh, but I don't know. There's something about being held down and killed with a machete in a car that just seems like probably one of the more unpleasant ways to go. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've always wanted, like, when my time comes, I always, I always hoped I would get eaten by dinosaurs. But I always fall back on I want to be shot at the age of 93 by a jealous husband because I was guilty. (laughs) I don't know if Rachel would find that all that funny. It's hedging a lot of bets there, I realize, but still. Yeah, okay, well, fair enough. These people are are crap at a crime scene. God, look at them letting everyone walk all over everything. I mean, this is just completely... Well, keep in mind, this isn't a time before modern forensics and whatnot. When, and actually, this actually, I'll be honest with you, this is one of those things that I think we've sort of lost in uh, this whole, you know, CSI forensic bullshit. You lose the aspect of detective work, you know, and it's like, well, what, what, what did the boys in the lab say? Well, who gives a shit, all right? They don't have any instincts. They weren't at the crime scene. What, what should we do, you know? What do you think? Anyway. Love the argument between these two. Yeah, like Bruce Hart's like, when will you lawyers start to... Where you going, boss? <laughs> no, it's just the the thing about that is, uh, you know, if you work with more than five people, these types of arguments are just going to break out in general. People are just going <laughs> to disagree on how we should proceed. Well, that, but there's just... Uh, you proceed know, they... in our investigation of the murder of JFK, or should we put this sign out <laughs> on the furniture pad? <laughs> so... Right. Yeah. And what, and I was and what I was thinking was that uh I mean they've got to be under, you know, so much pressure. Whether or not they're onto something or not, they've got the media on them. The government has got to be taking some kind of interest in this. Um and there's this whole uh, you know element of I guess lack of trust and intrigue. You know, do you, how, to what degree do you really trust your coworkers now? You know, when you're talking about the death of a president and the conspiracy to kill him, how much do you trust anybody? And you know, knowing that human life is extremely cheap to the people that would kill a, a, a president, you know, what is a good night's sleep really worth to you? So, I don't know. I mean, I'm surprised they were able to hold it together as long as they did. And we come to it at last. The yes. I got to tell you, this is probably my single favorite moment of the of the whole thing, where you've got Donald Sutherland, and I can actually, I guess we can say it now. You've got Donald Sutherland playing Mr. X. Yeah, Mr. X, and he's sort of basically he's going to walk Garrison through every single step of what he of what this guy sees having happened. You know, from his from his standpoint. 
not that he has any kind of special insight apart from his own training and instincts. How did it likely happen? Yeah. And again, I mean, as a kid, I kind of bought into it hook, line, and sinker because I didn't realize just to what extent this movie had been kind of, I, I don't want to say made up, but kind of fictionalized. This is one of them. This didn't actually happen. This character no. is based on a real-life person uh, claimed to be a, uh, a colonel in the United States Air Force by the name of Fletcher Prouty. He and Garrison made contact with one another sometime after the uh, trial of, uh, what's his name, Clay Shaw. I guess, you know, Fletcher Prouty was just in the shitter the entire time. Uh, Garrison's picture was all on TV and stuff. He had no idea what was going on. <laughs> so... I um, understand. I had the trots, and it was just, it lasted for six years. Yeah. And, but ultimately, he did get together. And now, what I've heard is that, um, what's his name? Richard Nagel, somebody from the CIA, did get to Garrison at one point and told him a bunch of rambling, sort of incoherent. It's, it's one of those confessions. It's like after you hear, you're like, what the fuck did this guy just confess? I have no idea what this guy's talking about. You know, told him just a bunch of bullshit and his kind of CIA spook type of language that I don't think you, you, you'd need three or four years of training in the CIA just to understand what the hell you just heard. Obviously, he hasn't had it. But this is one of those things that, again, it's, I guess, the truthiness of it where there's what is being said here. And then there's the way in which it's being said. And like you say, I think Donald Sutherland came dangerously, maybe even criminally close to walking away with this entire movie in his pocket just from this – what is this? This is like a 10 or 15-minute little sequence. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, all he really does is just talk fast. But there's this there's – this, I don't know. There's this kind of staccato – kind of uh, vibe to it, you know, this procession and the way he uses his voice and he's unfolding this really weird stuff. And it's, it's just, it's, it's mesmerizing. I could, I could watch this all day long. This, if I watch no other part of this movie and I'd see that, you know, just catch it on TV and I see that we're about to get there, I'll at least watch this much just cause it's so something. I don't know. You know, I know it's not the actor playing him, but the guy playing Mr. X's uh, commanding officer here. I don't know. Maybe it's because I watched a lot of Major Dad around this time. I always thought it was Gerald McCraney, and I was really upset when I found out that it wasn't. But he kind of looked and talked like Gerald McCraney from Major Dad. Now, do you know who that's supposedly based on? Who? Ed Lansdale. Oh, okay. So, um, basically, that was Fletcher Prouty's supposed superior officer. And so, um, yeah. And on this, and on the secondary disc, you can see Fletcher Prouty. Yeah, Boy, where he, is he a rambling... <laughs> Maybe it's because he's just older, but still. Right. Well, and the thing is, you know, he does actually... He does have a website, to be fair to him. Or he did, anyway, until uh, the time he passed away. He did have a website, and you can check it out at Prouty.org. P-R-O-U-T-Y.org. How did he get a .org? <laughs> How is the government paying for that? Um, well, you just go to wherever you want to register a domain and select .org, and it's pretty simple. I, th so. I thought you had to have something. I didn't. I, like non -profit. I don't know. Maybe not. Well, when I, got, when I had a .org, I didn't. But Well, anyway, so – and he actually does lay out what he thinks happened vis-a-vis um, -vis a conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. 
And it basically comes down to the fact that there is no conspiracy to kill Kennedy. He basically just said that the CIA decided it's time to get a new president. And so they just let slip through the, I don't know, back channel communications you have to the criminal, the international criminal underworld, that the usual methods to protect such and such person won't be observed at such and such time, at such and such place, on such and such date. And the people who would, because every, given that every politician has naturally has political enemies, you just let those people do your dirty work for you. And it's clean in as much as you don't, have to worry about being compromised at any point or anyone rolling over on anyone else. His point was, this is an assassination. It's not a fucking pizza. It's not something you just order, right? Yeah. So, um, and because of that, you know, what you would do is if you want to get rid of somebody, you just take away their protection and you make it known that you've taken away their protection and the bad guys will... They'll take care of the rest. It's basically like you want to get insurance money for for your store because the store is failing. So you leave the alarm off and you just let people know that you're leaving the alarm off and the the proper people will get a hold of this information and steal your stuff. You don't know who the people are that is actually stealing your stuff, but you kind of made it happen anyways. Right. But no one can prove anyone else. There, There is no real collusion that's going on here, and that's the point. And... Of all of the conspiracy theories that I've ever heard, that's the only one that I thought had any kind of validity to it whatsoever. Because anything else, you're left kind of wondering how you can keep a secret that involves the Secret Service, military intelligence, the CIA, probably the FBI, who knows how many people in the mafia, uh, very possibly uh, very pissed off anti-Castro Cuban exiles. I mean, just on and on down the list, a lot of really pissed off people that are somehow going to keep a secret that involves you, you know, when they have every intention, or rather they have every incentive, not least of which being their own freedom, to, to roll yeah, over on you. I mean, they, they make that point later in the film, how can you keep a secret between six people in that room? Much less, you know, I mean, that's a big secret. I mean, that, that's just, that's where more, most conspiracy theories really fall apart for me. Because if there's, like, more than a certain number of people... I mean, if it's, like, two people, uh, you know, plan between two people, that, that that's not technically a conspiracy. I understand by definition that's not. But still, you know, when you have three people, maybe you can control that. The more people involved, the more likelihood that it's going to get out. Now, then you have to make the decision, well, can we argue that and make this person look like a crackpot? But still, there is that danger that it might get believed. So, yeah, it's just, you, you've got to do it in the, you know, it's like Donald Sutherland says it. No one said he must die. You know, it's just like, we need a new president. Let's make that happen somehow. And then just let it kind of fester and, and boil and, and and go on from there. So, right. And Donald Sutherland is such a great actor anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, he's one of these people that no matter what he does, whether it's this movie, whether it's a time to kill, uh, you know, whether it's you know the the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and amazing or uh, Mash, which is probably what I think one of his better films. He was in Animal House too, and he was yeah. 
<laughs> Stalin and that film. Um, very, very few people know. I love. Uh, I participated. So I love that most of them are in black and white. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> is kind of weird to think about that it's like, you know, they're talking about something that happened, you know, several years before in the 60s, but still it's black and white. So. <laughs> this. I mean, you just you just get it. it, it the scene grabs you, and it does not let go. That's the thing about this scene. When you're watching it, like like you said, and like I said, when it there are certain movies where you can kind of like you know go back and forth, and you're like like you're doing laundry, or you're folding clothes, or you're you know you're cleaning up the kitchen or something. But then this scene comes on, and it's just like time slows down. You just sit down and watch it. Well, and I think the thing that more than any other sequence in this uh, in this film, this kind of takes advantage of every single little stylistic trick that Stone has employed in the film or will employ, where you have these kind of rapid cuts, different uh, you know movements uh, through time, you know uh, real news reels mixed with this current footage with those two in the park mixed with uh, speculative behind-the-scenes stuff, maybe in, like, the Oval Office involving Lyndon Johnson or who the hell knows who else, and the evil international bankers that secretly control every... I don't know. Oh, oh by, by the way, speaking of the guy playing Lyndon Johnson in these flashbacks, if Oliver Stone dropped the ball anywhere, it's that dude's accent. You kind of want to go on some fucking backbinding mission and he just scares the shit out of... It sounds like ass. It really does. Well, keep in mind, the actor playing the part is not the voice, and so I've often thought that, you know, the fact that it's overdubbed and kind of transparently overdubbed doesn't exactly help blend it. I've always thought that whoever they had doing the voice probably sound better if, if he could have been production audio. Just the guy doing the voice probably looked nothing like the man. So what do you do? But you're right, that does, it does, it is kind of hit and miss, I'll give you that. I mean, Johnson was a complicated person anyways, so, I mean, I'm not... <laughs> Who, LBJ? No. LBJ, yeah. Uh, I don't, I've never been a, you know. Anyway, enough said. Um, suffice it to say, I've never found him to be all that complicated a person at all. So, yeah. wow, I can't believe I came this close to getting political. It was very close. Wow. But hey, you know what? I, I got to tell you, though. Of anything that you could possibly talk about as far as subject matter and podcasting is concerned where the mask can slip at least a little bit, this movie, I mean, come on. You know, I think you and I are to be congratulated for not shooting our mouths off any sooner than we have. I mean, come on. We both win the podcaster award of the year for that one. I will agree with that completely because if you're going to talk about anything that can be politicized, the, the death of JFK can be seriously politicized. Well, and okay, I won't tell you which one I believe in, but you know what you can—I mean, you, you can just as easily attribute this to um, uh, conspiracy involving communists, conspiracies involving the paramilitary right wing, conspiracies involving. Uh, resurgent Nazis, uh, all different kinds of things, and you know some of them are very. It's very un. So I'm not going to tell you. 
Just to say, you know, which of those, if any, I believe in, other than to say that, you know, people are making those arguments every single day. So just keep in mind, if you think this commentary has maybe been a little bit dry, keep in mind how furious you might be if we were to at least discuss some of the more practical aspects of how some of those theories of, you know, those conspiracy theories might play out and whom they might involve. I don't know. I think, uh, like I say, I think you and I are to be congratulated. So congratulations, sir. <laughs> And to you, we will give each other a rounding slap on the back. Now, in this scene right here, I don't know where it's supposed to take place. I've always assumed it's the Oval Office, but if it's the Oval Office... Well, no, this would be the... This would be a meeting room. Yeah, something. But basically, this is just... To the... Like, again, I don't believe in a conspiracy theory, but if I was to... Believe in a conspiracy theory, I could believe in the fact that this was where the germs started. You know, basically right after the Bay of Pigs, possibly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, but um, I don't know. I just I would have thought that any conspiracy that somebody would have decided upon would have been at least in some, under some kind of planning stage by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Bay of Pigs, that I could see. I could see where the idea of it might have started there. And... <laughs> that that was the most unsubtle piece of uh, what is that called? Why can't I think of what it's called? Where you're trying to a subliminal messaging asked. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised he doesn't flash that building a little more throughout the course of the film. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he does have those little title cards at the beginning and end. So yeah, no, we are kind of beat over the head with it at least a little bit. To sin by silence when we should be protesting makes cowards out of men. So. <laughs> kind of putting it all right out there at the beginning, aren't you, Oliver? Okay, very good. Well, one thing I can say for Oliver Stone, though, is that he definitely believes in this, and he was willing to get beat up by the national media. Well, to, to, make, be, hmm? to be fair... Here, here's a here, here's a good example. Todd McFarlane did not buy a two million dollar baseball because he wanted a two dollar two million dollar baseball. Todd McFarlane bought a two million dollar baseball because then people would be talking, and that's press, and the kind of press that you get with that level of people talking about it would cost more than two million dollars. So Oliver Stone hanging it all out there sells tickets to his film. You know, people may not want to go see a, a JFK movie, but if they're like, you know, that Oliver Stone guy's crazy. You gotta see this shit. And more people I'm like you're not gonna let go of that arm, are you? My dog's uncomfortable. Um <laughs> <laughs> Well and yeah, you know, this is this is one of those movies where I guess the I don't want to say hype, but I guess the notoriety of it. After a while, it sort of feeds itself right up until the moment of wide release, where now you have the cast going on talk shows and they're having to talk about all of this stuff. And what I primarily remember are basically media appearance, uh, appearances by Oliver Stone. I've often wondered if the cast members were kept out of it specifically because the politic of this is. But you know what? I'm going to say this about Oliver Stone, though. He has a sense of humor about himself because in the movie Dave, which is a great Kevin Klein film where he plays a guy that looks like the president that ends up actually pretending to be the president, 
they have a media thing where Oliver Stone is sitting there arguing on like Meet the Press or something that the guy in the White House is not the real president. He has proof why. So at least he has a good sense of humor about himself. Yeah, I'll, I'll give him that. I didn't know that. I've never actually seen that movie, but that sounds like I don't know. That's that. That's funny. <laughs> But yeah, you probably would. I mean, I'm sure Costner did, you know, Johnny Carson. Well, yeah, it was 91, so Johnny Carson was still around. Um, and all the major... Was Arsenio Hall? Yeah, I guess Arsenio Hall would have still been around, too. But would Arsenio Hall really have covered this? I... I'm going to be nice and say I don't think so. I think this maybe fell outside of Arsenio's uh, scope. But, uh, no, it's just... <laughs> The intensity of Donald Sutherland at the end of this scene is amazing. Well, there's a point when actually, you know, I, I I totally missed it, but it's when they first sat down at the bench. You know, they're just both kind of casually staring off in the distance past the camera for a moment, and then Sutherland just kind of jerks around and looks at a uh, Costner who kind of jumps. <laughs> you know, and it's just so intense. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this: that entire scene, whenever they would show the two of them and they would do long shots. Uh, the Washington Monument was always around, always behind him. Do you think there's a little subtle, I cannot tell a lie? You know, I cut down the cherry tree and Washington being like the, you know, the personification of truth and being honest that you have his monument behind telling the story of what happened. I'm going to answer that by asking you, do you think there was any kind of symbolism in Man of Steel when Clark <laughs> was in that, that uh, Catholic church and he had... The statue of Christ behind him, or whatever that was, and and the the the, the part of the uh, of the passion play where uh, Christ is asking if he should give himself up. Yeah, yeah. There's no symbolism there at all. That was completely unintentional. Yeah, it just it, it happened, man. <laughs> Subtle, as a friend of mine used to say, when something wasn't subtle at all. <laughs> yeah, this is where the VHS tape would cut out, as I recall, right as he turned yeah, his head. Right. Right there, and then it'd be like, so that's every time I see it on DVD, I, I almost like instinctively get up to change things out. But uh, no, it's kind of weird because it is the end of that act. So I guess maybe they felt it was, but we've got, God, how much more time do we have in this thing? Like an hour. We've got, yeah, we've got like about an hour left. So wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> though, though to be fair, it's been going by pretty quick. So. Well, and to be, and yeah, there have been a lot of different angles and things to uh, to talk about, but this this is the moment where you know Garrison has had to escalate things a lot higher and possibly a lot faster than he might have originally intended. I mean, the fact is, whether it's a conspiracy or not, whether it's natural causes or foul play, his uh, consp his uh, witnesses are just dying on him left, right, and center. And he's getting back to the point – or rather, he's getting quickly to the point where if he doesn't press a case on this right now, flip a coin. I mean who's to say that uh, Shaw won't be next? And then if the, if it comes to that, this really is now an officially uh, a, a cold case. And so that's kind of the situation that he's in right now, and you kind of have to figure that if, he, if he'd had even more – like even six more months – that maybe he might have handled things a little bit differently, but you know, it's just that right now his 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 hand is kind of being forced by external forces. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, watching them that that press conference, you know, the press going after him, and all the that that one guy that has the microphone that looks like a gun. There's something you couldn't do today. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> 
Um, God, what is the name of this actor doing the... Uh, Bob Gunton. God, he is he's great in everything. He is just amazing in everything. He was uh, I found out that he was in one of the, the original cast recording of a musical I did in, in high school called Big River, and I cannot really see him in the role that he played. But I guess most people would know him from Shawshank Redemption. Uh, probably, yeah. Uh, as, yeah, that's another one that a lot of people that made a lot of careers. It's funny because that movie made no money, made a lot of careers. Uh, yeah. Then I get to sit there and shatter the youth of the young kids that work for me by telling them that the guard in that that beats the crap out of everybody is Mr. Crab on SpongeBob SquarePants. So. <laughs> and Lex Luthor on on uh, <laughs> Superman Luthor. the Animated Series. Yeah. You see, they'll they'll believe him playing a villain, not Mr. Crab. <laughs> so. I think uh, I think Tommy Lee Her- Jones's hair in this deserves like almost an Oscar nomination on its own because it's pretty epic. <laughs> yeah, I was I, I was gonna say it it needs its own credit, you know. Uh, <laughs> co-starring Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy Lee Jones's wig. While while you were taking your smoke break, I was talking about that. It's kind of interesting to see how subtly through the course of the film Jim Garrison's hair gets grayer and grayer. God, he's creepy when he's just in like full face on that. Yeah, yeah. He, there's, yeah, he's definitely not a, a close-up type of actor, is he? <laughs> That's. This is not a moody shot at all. In wet pavement at night, walking down the street alone. So I guess right now, what we're supposed to believe is that. Uh, Garrison feels perfectly safe and confident in the outcome of his trial. He's very happy. That's what the darkness signifies, right? <laughs> I like how we got a couple things going on in this scene of his family being threatened and the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King. Yeah, and you know what? Speaking of that, this is actually this is just a really economical movie in general. Like every scene, and I don't mean just because of the rapid fire cuts, but I mean every single scene generally does it accomplishes two or three or sometimes four things all in one shot you know um i guess the outrage over the uh, well there's the death of martin luther king the outrage over it uh garrison's responses to it no by the way his daughter being threatened um yeah and and that's where i go that you know there are some films that are i mean compared it like this to the movie nixon where I think Oliver Stone just didn't it's kind of like the complete opposite of this film where he he takes, you know, a historical thing but you know kind of is very self-serving with the story. Here he is absolutely fu- no matter what he is trying to put forward, he is also equally as you know laser focused on telling a story that people are going to want to see. And that's why I, that's why I like him as a director so much, is that he has that ability. I mean, have you ever seen Any Given Sunday? No. It's a movie where a lot of stuff is happening all at once, and it's all about football, but it's all, it's just as engaging as this movie. Hmm. So, I mean, it's just, you know, he, he is very talented. You know, he's controversial, but that's just because he tends to deal with subjects, you know... <laughs> Steven Spielberg wasn't going to be on Meet the Press to discuss Jurassic Park, you know? 
Yeah. And argue, and arguably that that film was big, as big, if not bigger, than this one. So you know, you know, Stone is is known for his controversy because of the subject matters, but I think that gets lost in the fact that he's a very good storyteller, and he's a very effective filmmaker. Because the reason why I can watch this film again and again is the decision, every little decision that is made in the editing, engages me. Like, you know, we, 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 like right here, we have an argument between a, a husband and wife with scenes of tumult in the country in the background or on the television. Right. I mean, it's like 16 things. Gonna, it's, it's fun and games, man. It's fun and games. <laughs> that was terrible. I apologize. But, but here's the point. Okay. This is the part of the film that I am never going to, uh, to say that a woman should be slapped. But if my wife looked at me while I was sitting there, like, bearing my soul and said, well, have you ever considered what his feelings was? One, she wouldn't care. I, I'm going to go so far as to say is that most people wouldn't have cared if he went after Clay Shaw because he was gay in 1967 or 1968. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there mm-hmm. and not going to it any further. But still, to go, well, what about his feelings? It's just like, what? Wait, whoa, time out. I mean, and yes, it's to put forward forward the notion that... Maybe you're wrong. Did you ever think of that? Yeah, and the, the, mo- the moment where he realizes, you never believed me. You know, I mean, so, but still, that, that's the point where even you know, the first time my wife and I watched that, she went, what did she just say? <laughs> Did I ever consider the feelings of the man that's probably responsible for the death of the president? No, as a matter of fact, it never entered my mind. <laughs> Whether or not I hurt his feelings just doesn't matter. Well, you know, and one of the things about and I and I realize, you know, it's a movie, there's only so much stuff that you can put in there and so you you basically have to you have to move things along and I get that. But one of the just kind of interesting things about history here is that, you know, Jim Garrison was the district attorney of New Orleans Parish, and so he had the he had the legal authority to put together a case involving suspects. And if he had a if he had sufficient um, proof, he could basically have someone arrested and then you know charged with insert crime here, and then that would have been enough. He did not do that in the case of Clay Shaw. He actually went, and again, I realize you can't put stuff like this in a movie because it's going to just be boring, but he actually went to a grand jury specifically because of the, the seriousness of the charges, and he said – he basically – his task at that point is con, is to convince – the grand jury that he has a case. And if they had said no, that is the end of it right there. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what happens next. And so by doing that, he actually went the harder route. You know, when he, he, he had a clear field, he's within his rights to go out and arrest somebody. But by going to the grand jury first, he's basically risking everything while Shaw is risking nothing. And to me, it's one of those things that whether or not you believe there's a conspiracy or not, that is uh, – come on. How many people out there would have done that? You know, uh, that is due diligence You know, because it doesn't matter anymore if you're right or if you're wrong. You've now turned your fortunes over to a bunch of strangers, and if they say you're wrong, it doesn't matter anymore. You can't arrest this guy. It doesn't matter what you find from here on in. And I always uh, – that is balls, you know, so – 
anyway, know, the- I, I agree with what you're saying, but you know, I'm a legal expert, but I do watch a lot of Law and Order, mm-hmm. and which doesn't make me a legal expert at all. But the, the phrase that is said more times on Law and Order than any other phrase is that you can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And if I ever wanted the Mythbusters to take on any kind of that's I want to see them actually try to get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich just to see if it's actually possible. But uh, this sequence with the voting thing, I think, was added in the director's cut as well. OK, now that I don't actually remember one way or the other. So it was a lot clearer that, man, if only 10 years ago when I bought this DVD, I had written notes knowing that I would be doing commentary a decade later. Damn it. I love the slow burn here. Uh, God, why can't I keep these characters' names straight? Um, him. Lou Ivon? Yeah, his, his, his Lou's slow burn during this whole thing where he finally has just had enough. It's just brilliant. It's so subtle. You do my job. I do your job. You do my job. Uh, yeah, no. Um, like, I look, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that situation, right? But I, I at least have been in on meetings where I see someone just give bullshit excuse after bullshit excuse. And eventually, and keep in mind, I am not this person's boss, but it just, I just fucking snap. And I'm like, you're not trying, all right, is what it comes down to, all right? And, and that, that was basically Ivan's point. He's like, you know, it, that guy kept saying he's an investigator and he basically just says, well, nobody's talking and he's, you're not digging. All right. That's the problem. You're not trying hard enough. And uh, I think all of us at some point or another have been just that fucking exasperated with the stupidity of some of our coworkers. Surely you've been in this situation, sir. Uh, I have, and I may be again on Sunday. So, <laughs> Well, aren't you like an assistant manager or general manager or something? I mean, I'm one of the I'm one of the middle mid level managers. So yeah, I, I've experienced stuff like this quite a number of times. <laughs> so uh, the light again, the lighting in this sequence is amazing. You know, it's it's a shame. The black and white scenes in this movie make me want more black and white movies, but I know that that's actually apparently more almost as complicated as color at this point because of the the lighting that you have to do to make certain things look good i mean hell the superman costume on the george reeve series was brown and gray to make it look good yeah and well and i actually think that's a really good looking costume for the time so but yeah the um and the thing is, you know, I think if Superman Returns proves nothing else, it's that there are certain things that you cannot do with digital video. You can approximate, like, film type of exposure and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do it – well, shit, I'm actually tempted to say if you don't do it well, it's going to come out badly. But I'm actually I'm actually to the point now where I've seen so many people try to do that, that kind of grainy well, – not grainy, but that sort of overexposed type of film stuff. That in the case of Superman Returns, it just looked like it came right out of Brian Singer's asshole. That I'm I'm almost tempted to think that you know, dude, whatever whatever it costs for you to do this, to find black and white film or color film and then monochromize it, or dude, just do whatever you got to do, just to fucking avoid digital. All right, that's all I got to say. <laughs> he is a dead duck. 
You know, it's kind of funny that really this part of the film, I'm still engaged. It's kind of interesting that it's actually during the trial that I kind of, I don't know. It's, it's like he got to the end of the film and didn't put as much effort into it or something. I don't know. Well, it's something he and Garrison have in common then. So. <laughs> but yeah, th- this scene is basically to kind of show the breakdown in the ranks. Um, because, uh, you know, obviously, in terms of the film, I'm not talking in real life, because, as you said, Broussard didn't exist. But this is the point where Bruce, where people have gotten to Broussard to the point where he's really trying to sully the pool and get them to not uh, focus on what they're actually focusing on. Uh, to the point where he is probably not intentionally tanking the case because that's what the government wants him to do. He thinks he's doing the right thing here. He thinks he's protecting his boss. Yeah, and honest, I mean, I'm of the like, what I've been told, uh, or I, I've been told what I've uh, what I've seen, what I've read, is that Garrison kind of he he wanted to conduct this as a sort of with a military style chain of command. He's the general, and then everybody else. You know, they basically follow their orders. And on that basis, I could see where somebody like Bruce Sard would royally piss him off because it's not your job to think. It's your job to shut the fuck up and do what you're told to do. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I'm of the opinion that when the when the soldiers start getting a little bit too creative, a little too free thinking, it's time to find yourself some new fucking soldiers. And honestly, this is a guy that you should have recognized was unstable. Or I mean, maybe not unstable, but unreliable. A, a little earlier on. Now, keep in mind, it's Monday morning quarterback thing for me to say. And besides, he's he's a composite to begin with, anyway. But yeah. <laughs> it just kind of feels like, you know, you can kind of put together a little bit of a profile of people and figure out, you know, who is really capable of withstanding the strain of this type of case with this type of scrutiny. And it's just everything that he's done throughout this movie, he con- has convinced me he's the exact fucking wrong guy for a case like this. Well, all, you know, we, we have to examine it in two different ways. We've been, we've been really focusing mainly on the historical aspect, but this is also a story. So you also have to talk about it as a story. And if you, if this was like a fictionalized murder trial and somebody was doing this, we'd be picking it apart every step of the way. So yeah, true. Oh, you know, you you gotta you gotta love uh, you gotta love that this era, you know, even thinking of accusing the president of anything, especially murder, is so anathema to these people. Where nowadays, because you know, you remember that point in the night where every action film had to go out of its way to make the point that the president wasn't the most powerful person in the country; it's whoever's running whatever shadow cabinet is actually controlling things. Yeah. Okay. I, I think we had enough of that where if nowadays you had somebody come up and say, you know, w- whether it's Bush or Obama or anybody, he's like, yeah, they, they, they killed a guy. There'd be people out there and not, and not thinking, well, the president of the United States couldn't do that. So I think we've diluted that office to a certain extent. And I don't know if that's actually for the best. I mean, I don't want to get off on completely unrelated subjects, but I've often wondered if we haven't like as a country kind of fucked ourselves a little bit when it comes to that. So, yeah. Now this, this scene also proves that Garrison is not, 
not really being the most stable person in the room either. Where, uh, you know, he he lets Broussard get away with what he get away with, but this guy gets canned. Yeah. <laughs> Which well, is just... It's just like the wrong time to pull Rankus. Well, and it's also the wrong time for Lou Ivon to... Uh, I'm sorry, you know, the, the time to give your boss an ultimatum that you're not going to work with somebody else anymore is probably not the time, like five minutes after that guy just quits. You know, yeah, exactly. especially if you think giving your boss an ultimatum might cost you your job. You know, dude, you already fucking won. Shut up. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, but what I will say, and I, I wish I could remember this guy's name. It's on the tip of my tongue, but I will say this is this is a good performance. Apparently, he's more of a theater actor than he is film. You can kind of so, tell that. No. Mm. The, the reason why is uh, theater actors really are a little more broad with their physical because they have to be seen from the back of the 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 theater, mm-hmm. which would make them theater actors because mm-hmm. I can speak coherently i promise so and it also makes sense that i've seen him on law and order so many times because god they use the broadway pool for their killers and witnesses and all that on that show because it was filmed in new york city so it's probably convenient casting and uh for the producers and easy money for the actors and why not do it uh it was it was a reason they called the show the mothership because it's where all actors went now, here's a scene that was in the director's cut that shocked the hell out of me the first time I saw it. Because if you would have told me in 1991 that uh, Dan Fielding from Night Court was in this film, I would have... Oh, man, I love John Larroquette. Just absolutely... Well, and this is just such a cheesy 60s. I realize this is sort of a Johnny Carson analog, because that's really what it is, is Johnny Carson. But there's a, I don't know, there's a, just sort of a cheesiness to this that I don't associate with Johnny Carson. And it's just this this kind of vapid, I don't know. Hey, look at that suit. Yeah. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, look, the, the mayor from Jaws is looking at that suit with lust in his eyes, man. <laughs> what the hell are you wearing, dude? John Larroquette. I can't tell you how obsessed, especially when this movie came out, I was with Night Court. And it's really a shame that they cut this scene because it would have been a really big break for him. Uh, in, in Because his his film career was kind of spotty at this point. Uh, and to be fair, I think this is probably when he was exiting his alcoholism. Uh, not that you ever exit that, but he was coming on the other side of it. So, But, you know, I, I think the only other film I'd ever really seen him in outside of Stripes... Uh, was a was a film with Bronson Pinchot and Stuart Pankin where they were psychic detectives. I'm gonna wrap your head around that for a minute. So I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> and I'm Bronson, feeling. Bronson Pinchot was basically somebody that was taken over by a by a ghost, and Dan and John Larroquette was a detective that was teamed up with him, and they were private detectives. And Stuart Pankin was a paranormal doctor. It's actually pretty bad. <laughs> you don't say. But I watched it a thousand times because it was on HBO the summer of 1990. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to think that's... that's the downfall a, of my teenage years, yes. That, of our generation, but yeah. Um. 
This is why I can remember Los Lobos kicks your ass. Los, Los Lobos kicks your brains. Los Lobos kicks your balls into outer space. So mm-hmm. I, I love the uh, the studio exec shutting things down in this sequence, and 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 the happy go lucky uh, host kind of yeah. That look on his face when he keeps talking is just so great. Like I told you to shut up. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I mean, this this whole scene is just, it's uncomfortable to watch. It's, you know, it's just, it's cringe-inducing. And uh, anyway, I mean, yeah, and I, and I get the, I, Jim Garrison was held up to this level of national ridicule, and I get that. And it sucks, you know. Uh, oh, this is another one. Um, this is the scene that had to be explained to me. Yeah. I, basically, I, I didn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, um... But you do understand it. Yeah, well, when, when Oliver Stone in the commentary said that they tried to get him in a in a scandal involving a gay man in a bathroom, I was like, oh, what's going on here? Right. Because at first I'm like, why is that dude trying to to shake his hand? And why are the cops all upset? Oh, okay. It was the 60s. I forgot. <laughs> right, yeah. I When I first saw this in the director's cut, Look, you and I are both kind of from the same generation that just takes a different view of homosexuality than our forebears did. And so we didn't see the scandal here. So, But it was only whenever I started thinking about it, I was like, actually, you know what? He might have – if there was a way – if there was a way to frame somebody for that, that's a great way to discredit them, you know? And um, anyway – I think the great tragedy on that newsstand is that there's no comics to look at. Yeah, you notice that too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, every time I see a newsstand in a movie or television show, I scan for comics. That's why on the show Becker, I saw that they had in like the 2000s Reign of the Superman issues on the on the spin rack. Well, like, and you know, here's the thing: what I always kind of wondered about what exactly was it that tipped him off. You know, I mean, what was it? The guy going into the stall next to him and dropping his drawers. Because uh, gee, that never happens in a bathroom. I mean, come or was on. it the guy walking up to him and like the foot and all that? It's just. And are really there that many cops hanging out outside the bathroom? Apparently so. Well, I mean, for something that's staged, yeah. I mean, this—that's what this was intended to be. So, yeah, they even had the photographer there and ready to go. I mean, supposedly this really, supposedly this really happened. Something I, like this happened where they. Tried to get him jacked up into something. Yeah, it's a pretty progressive place. It has a handicap accessibility. Well, uh, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> this is this is one of my favorite. Let's combine three things at once because on on the face of it, it's the scene of the man coming home after being troubled and kissing his wife walks into the room and everything is hit the fan. <laughs> like, oh, I love my wife. This is a nice family moment. Oh, all my coworkers are here. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they were just hanging out, I guess. I don't know. Um, but this, this uh, little bit that's coming up here is the one argument I think there is for cutting that scene in the bathroom from just a minute ago. Yeah. Because they say that basically Broussard's gone, he, he's gone rogue. And so, well, that's really all you need. And I'm sorry, uh, look, that scene in the bathroom, especially to people our age, it needs to be explained. 
it's not yeah. the kind of thing that it has that instant, you know, cultural, you know, reference point to it. You need to explain that. It's confusing otherwise. And I think he, I think Stone did the right thing by cutting it and the wrong thing by putting it back in. That's just, I mean, that's that that's a scene you want to see in the deleted scenes section, you know? Right. Like, oh, that was interesting they shot that. I'm glad I saw that. Because um, there are times where I watch deleted scenes and I'm like, wow, that would have been really cool in the film. But more often than not, when I see a deleted scene, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I see exactly why they cut that. You know, you didn't need that here. And that's what I think people kind of m- maybe forget about movies is that when you're in the moment making something, it's really different than when you're trying to cut it all together at the end. Like something that feels like a really cool scene because everyone had a really good time shooting it and it came off really well, you know, and and you're like in the moment, you know, it's just like, you know, that's all well and good. And and I'm glad you had a good time doing it. But does it really belong in the film? Does it belong in your story? Does is it redundant? And you're absolutely right. Broussard leaving would have been so much better if two seconds later, he two seconds earlier, he wasn't trying to help him. Right. And, you know, and then the thing is we saw him leave, we saw him quit and people were saying, I don't trust him. And then he comes home and find out, yeah, the fuck the, the guy really has been working on the other side. It, to me, it just, it, it's that much more believable where you don't have this because it, again, you know, that whole thing in the bathroom doesn't make sense to people our age, and so we're now we're under we're left wondering, okay, what the fuck's going on with this yo-yo plot? Why isn't Bruce Hard coming? But wait, did he have something to do with that bathroom thing, or what? What the fuck is going on? And to me, it's one of those things where you know you have to count, you, you have to keep your audience in the loop somehow, and there's not even an explanation in scene about what happened, and so you're basically if you were not alive back when stuff like that was more common, you don't know what the hell you just saw. And yeah, and, I, and and I'm not the type of person that likes to admit when I need something explained to me because I think of myself as a you know primarily a pretty smart cookie you know I, I'm I'm not I'm not an idiot <laughs> essentially but to have that so when I sit there and I look at something I'm like God I'm not really understanding that I always blame myself like okay I'm not smart enough to figure that out but when I watch the commentary and he finally explained it I'm like oh okay I'm not a moron I was just born in 1976. Right. So it's just like that was an interesting uh, rapid zoom in on the television. Yeah, and it, it, it's kind of funny the camera zooming in rapidly on a TV. Um, there's something meta to that. I don't know, but well, the, this is this is why the why I say the end of this film is uh, I don't want to say it's sloppy because I think that's a little too critical of it, but where things aren't as tight as they were because, you know, it's like he comes home, he has, you know, he's kissing his family. And then that dude's just standing there. Like it's like, it's a dream sequence almost. And so he's forcing all that stuff. And then we have the argument with, you know, with his people and with his wife. And then we cut to like an empty house where he's making himself a sandwich. So it looks like his wife left him and took all the kids, but then he goes upstairs and there she is in bed. It's just really weird. Right. And the one thing I can say that would half-ass 
uh, excuse some of that is the fact that you got to understand this script. It was like apparently tossed together in something like three or six months or something like that. And I think I've always gotten the impression that, you know, the usual types of refinements and stuff that any script would go through, this didn't get, this didn't necessarily get that final draft. And so, you know, certain things, I still think it's a, it's a really well-written movie and a lot of the dialogue, it's smart, it's snappy, but to me, it's just, it's a draft away, especially like the last, I don't know, maybe hour or so of the movie it just needs a little bit of a polish. I always thought it needed to be tightened up. And I say always. I did not. I, when, I, when I was 11 years old and seeing this shit, I didn't think that. But I'm just saying, as an adult now, looking back at it, yeah, I do think that now. Well, I'm I'm of the opinion, just across the board, that endings are hard. Mm-hmm. Endings to anything is difficult. I mean, it's it's it, you know, it's not all as cut and dry as let's you know make the run on the Death Star. And especially uh, in this case, when your hero of a sort, your protagonist at least, he loses. Yeah, so, you know, this is why episodic television's kind of weird, because uh, unless you've got a, a writing crew that's really on top of things, I mean, look at the end of season four of Smallville. <laughs> I mean, I'm just using that as an example of not being on the top of your game with an ending, you know? Like, yeah, it's really cool to see Clark doing all that stuff, but wow, that should have been... This whole year should have been more. It was the end of his scene. It was a scene, anyways. But still, I think, I think endings, just especially this ending, it. This is where like the cutting seems to lose a lot of focus, and the overall point until we get to the actual Zabruder film seems to get lost. So it, it, it's just. Well, and even that, I could kind of half-ass, I'd, you know, let slide by the fact that that's, at least up to a point, that was how the trial was sort of carried out. I mean, you know, Garrison had had so many things that were taken away from him, and uh, so much he was expecting to be able to do that he wasn't able to do, and it was just, it was a little bit of a clusterfuck, trying to get it all, you know, put together and everything, and... Uh, uh, the late 60s where a process where a defense attorney could defame a a witness by saying a confessed homosexual yeah (laughs) now uh, this I like cutting to him standing in front of the table is actually kind of awesome I've always wanted I mean that was actually a question I had are witnesses allowed to just stand up like that I thought you had to keep your seat I I thought that was an artistic thing personally Uh Fair enough. So maybe I'm taking a little too literally. Fine, wouldn't be the first time. Well, I think this entire this entire trial sequence up until the point where we get to the thing is 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 more artistic than the other smash cut explanation scenes. Um, I like how though when when he's talking to the law enforcement guy, he's got to impugn his memory and not his reputation. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know what? I think you're right. You asked me a while ago, was that stuff in Clinton, the voter registration stuff, cut yeah. from the theatric? I think you. I think it was, because I remember the f- first couple of times I watched this, I was like, who the hell is this old guy, and when? Did, <laughs> and where the hell is this coming from? And, you know, but that whole little conversation with, I think, Susie at the restaurant at Paul's, yeah. that was, um, oof, yeah, that's, I think that... I, it was established somewhere else in the movie, and I'm tempted to say it was at that little uh, – at a Paul's restaurant, right? And yeah. I swear to think that was – you know, that's where you, we were first introduced to that. And then when they bring it back later, oh, yeah, I remember that. 
this is my favorite of the uh, witnesses because it's just like he looks completely normal until they bring out the crazy. <laughs> right. And apparently this is the name's been changed to protect the guilty, but he was there as a plant. If you buy into the conspiracy Sounds, aspect, that yeah. is. Look, look, I got in a suit for this. You guys are actually going to tell me I can't testify? Yeah, look at how many chins I got. Yeah, you have any idea how hard it is for me to find a necktie? Come on, people. Okay. Now, again, I am no expert on the law, but it seems like if you're going to call as a witness a police officer who took a statement, why would you excuse the jury on that? Oh, because he's basically he's throwing out um, that uh, that uh, uh, cop's testimony, and they, basically he doesn't want the jury to hear that. Yeah, but I'm I'm just that that, that either had to be a judge on the take or a really convincing argument. Because when you're giving a statement, if you're if you're suspect that you have in custody answers the question you know he had the choice not to say i have an alias you mm. know well and i think they did miranda i don't think that you know at the time i don't think they that police necessarily had to mirandize you but i think he actually was mirandized and that is a weird thing to say because once they say that you have the right to remain silent you need to understand that anything you say can and, and will, be, will be used against you in a court of law. But it cannot help you. That's the part they're not saying. It can't. There's nothing you can say that can possibly help you. So shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing is that, you know, uh, we uh, we do business cards at my work, and we uh, we deal with all types of businesses. And one is a is a lawyer's office that on the back of her business card. It says, when talking to the police, you do not have to talk to the police. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's really smart to put there, that you don't have to talk to them. It's It might go badly for you later, but you don't. So I just, I was always confused about that. Maybe, maybe there's something, like I said, people who know a little more about the law, especially the laws that stood in 1960, you know, the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, that maybe. Now, yeah, this Zabruder footage was hot shit in 1991. Yes, it was. Well, especially since, you know, it may be easy to forget now, but, like, these days you can go on to YouTube and find not only the original Zabruder film, but you can find sort of, I guess, turn it like enhancements of it. Mm -hmm. Somebody put together, I found one, like, a couple years ago that had... It was something like a thousand frames per second that had motion tweens, so that it looked, it almost looked like it was shot with a twenty-four millimeter camera, or twenty-four or whatever. What 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 twenty-eight millimeter? What is whatever the fucking the normal kind is that movies uh, are shot with? Thirty-five. So, thirty-five. That's the one. So it looks like it's, it, it was shot with a thirty-five millimeter film camera, right? That's how good looking it is. And basically, I don't know how the hell you do something like this, but somebody, I guess, got a copy of it, digitized it, cleaned it up, did this, did that, and added in all of these tweens so that instead of that herky-jerkiness that you associate with the Zapruder film, this is – it's just so smooth and everything. And um, I don't know if watching you know, the president – you know, President Kennedy getting shot to death in better quality, if that's your idea of fun, 
But uh, okay. one, I guess it depends on your uh, your own personal uh, likes and dislikes and your opinion of President Kennedy. Right. <laughs> whether or not you want to watch him getting his head blown off, because that's that's pretty graphic. I mean, that's. Well, nobody deserves – I don't care who you are. Nobody deserves to die that way. Nobody. No, no. And and it's just, you know, the, the fact is, you know, he got shot in the throat and then his head got taken off. That's that's brutal. And the fact that we had never seen it was almost probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, and I, I tend to agree. I mean, things like that, if, if it's going to help with, you know, finding the SOBs who did it, then there's a sense in which I'm okay with the public seeing that stuff. But honestly, uh, unless it can somehow help the case, I almost tend to think, you know what? No, just we don't need that. We don't need you to know, see. I mean, it, they would never have shown it in the 60s. But then again, we live in an era where we see things like that all the time. It's just like when the Challenger blew up in 1986. Jeez. Uh, I remember that day because it was at lunchtime when somebody was talking about it. It's like somebody said I was in fourth grade and someone's like the Challenger blew up, the space shuttle blew up. And I and I remember distinctly thinking, oh, maybe they'll talk about it on the news when I get home because I didn't see it. Not realizing that for the next 24 hours, they were going to show it again and again and again. And the same with 9-11. I mean, there was a period of time in the days after 9-11 where they were showing those towers coming down again and again and again and it's just like if if for some reason and i'm not saying that this should happen nsa so please realize that but if if like the president was killed tomorrow hypothetically hypothetically like he's giving his speech in atlanta right now to the cdc or maybe it was yesterday and someone took him out they would show that footage again and again and again just because that's how the cycle of news happens these days so maybe we're maybe I'm being both prudish and at the same time jaded. <laughs> like I don't think we should see it, but more importantly, I don't really want to see it, you know? Right. It's kind of weird. I yeah, and I I I tend to agree with you. Now, the um like I said, I mean, it, look, if there's any way that it, it can help somehow, Bring that, yeah. you know, bring the bad guys to justice. Then, hey, go for it. But otherwise, look, what, just it, think of a president that you admire, and then think of a president that you don't admire. They both, neither of them deserve that. You know, I don't yeah. care what you think of somebody's policies; they don't fucking deserve that, and they especially don't deserve deserve that. Like on on to have that shown on TV again and again. And I'm and so I agree with you. I mean, you know, like I said, there unless there's some kind of I mean, I'm of the opinion that no matter what Jackie Kennedy did the rest of her life after November 22nd, 1963, that she should have gotten a free pass. Public should have just left her alone because not only was her husband, his blood was all over her. I mean, holy crap. Yeah, he was like hellaciously (laughs) murdered, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And... I'm sorry. You go through something like that. They should. The public should. And I know we we live in a in a world where people just want to butt their noses into things that have nothing to do with them, which is neither here nor there in this commentary. But still, I'm just saying that's just you know the the it, the, the shot that they keep showing of her like getting up. I mean, that's just and like going to the edge of the uh, at the back of the car. That's like holy crap. 
that was the twist end of the because in the original history Jackie died too but Sam leaped into the secret service guy that jumped onto the back of the car and that somehow saved her mm. it was like the only quantum leap-esque thing about the episode really <laughs> you know the uh it's it's kind of sad to think though that one of the most probably the most famous picture of Jackie Kennedy it's on uh, Air Force One standing next yeah, to Yeah, she's yeah. Well, and, and she's just you can see it on her face. She's in shock. She has no idea what the fuck just happened. But you know what like there are so many weird things about that picture and she's only like she's the most prominent, but you look closely. Johnson is not being sworn in on a Bible. It's a Roman missile. And he's on a plane. He's being sworn in by a woman rather than a Supreme Court justice. Just on and on and on. There are so many weird fucking bits. Um, it's like on the one hand, I'm glad we have a picture of that because I don't think anybody would believe it otherwise. But on the other hand, it sucks that, you know, that's one of the most famous pictures of Jackie. She's covered in blood and everything. And it's just it's it's a yeah, there it is. Apparently, apparently some dude in the background was at a party and they just brought him in. Yeah, because he's in a tux. Yeah, I never understood that. Yeah, <laughs> that maybe that's just because we don't understand the uh, the fashion sense of people in 1963. But well, what I'm hoping <laughs> is that um, I love that judge saying, "Please bottle the X." Acid or the a- oh, I thought he see. I could never understand. I've heard X and I've heard angst. <laughs> oh, and I, I- and I kind of prefer bottle the angst. <laughs> Oh, well, just I had it on subtitles once upon a oh, time. Oh, so he just says, okay. Very yeah, good. and uh, he's like, please, bottle the acid. And he's kind of, it's sort of clipped off at the end, but acid. So. Yeah, how would you like to be, you know, that be, you know, like, you're, you're, you're just a dude that works in a hospital, you deal with coming in all the time, and then suddenly the president's rolled in on your table. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's pressure I don't need. Fuck that. I'd sooner turn that over to an assistant or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, actually, I guess he doesn't have a choice, though, because, uh, what, he's in the Navy? Yeah, he has I think to do so. It. Yeah, so you basically get orders from on high. You pretty much get to shut up and do what you're told. Yeah, you don't want to be the guy that's just like, hey, I just noticed something. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> and that's a really just creepy-looking dummy they have. Yeah. Does, uh serve as the kind of stand-in for the dead the the dead Kennedy there. As opposed to the band. Yeah. It was only after I said it that I realized, you know, yeah. So, that yeah, that's a really creepy looking, I don't know what you call that, like a mannequin, a puppet, uh, whatever. Fucked up. Makes you wonder, though, what is the fate of like dummies and things like that. Like after the movie gets made, does somebody take something like that home as like weird fucked up movie memorabilia? Cause that is 10 different kinds of weird, sir. You put it in storage and bring it out every Halloween <laughs> and on the 22nd. <laughs> no one really wants to live next to you after that, by the way. It's like, Bob, it's really great that you have movie memorabilia, but could you not like bring out the the, the, the dead John Kennedy on the 22nd of every year? <laughs> Don't infringe upon my rights. You know, there's... Um, did you ever see... Are you Facebook friends with Heath, uh, Ethan Van Skyver? I uh, used to be. Oh, all right. Well, he posted a picture of... And, of course, he's 
he's joke. I hope he was joking, but uh, he posted a picture of what he wanted uh, of the Halloween costume he wanted his now I guess ex-wife um, to wear for Halloween one year, and it was <laughs> it was the Jackie Kennedy outfit covered in. <laughs> Wow, that's kind of dark. Yeah, and that's just the kind of Facebook he had, or had anyway. He's less so now, but at the time he would just post the most inflammatory stuff. And it, it geez, I wonder if I know anybody else like that. Is that a reference to Chris Honeywell? <laughs> it's a reference to, to well Jeffrey Taylor and oh. a bunch of other people I know. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> That used to post stuff, but then again, you're the expert on getting defriended by posting stuff. So I get defriended for stupid things. I mean, yeah, I know that's the thing. That's what I don't understand. I mean, look, I'm not that I would do it, but one of the things I've wondered is, you know, could I write up a post, you know, all about hol- uh, Holocaust denial? Just to see if, just to use that as something to compare to. Oh, now I'm losing friends, or no, that. Just seem to roll away from people. And wouldn't that depress the shit out of you if that that was the thing people gave you the pass on? Like, oh, oh, humanity, you disappoint me so. Well, you know, it's just it, it just kind of makes you wonder. You know, what the hell does it take? You know, and uh, apparently, just got you got you got to post songs from YouTube. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I I will say that uh, this part of the trial is actually kind of interesting. Because we're pulling a lot of the pieces from the earlier part of the film together to now everything kind of makes sense to what Oliver Stone is putting forth as his theory of the crime. Right, and yeah, and it's it, it, it's kind of like it's a sort of montage or it's a collection of basically everything that we've seen up to now, but now it's all overlaid together. Yeah. And honestly, the... Uh, the one thing that really just kind of ruins this scene for me is that all of the supposed assassins, they all look like beer-swilling rednecks. Other than that, I actually find it to be a fairly persuasive piece of filmmaking, but... I can see where you would be sensitive to that. Yeah. What are you, what are you suggesting? You have a problem with that sort of thing. So. Oh, I, I'm just fucking with you, dude. <laughs> oh, okay. I was, I was not suggesting that you are a beer-swilling redneck. <laughs> So, hold on, are you saying there's something wrong with being a beer-swilling redneck? I'm not getting into this argument. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, now, and again, I mean, this is... Basically, what we're seeing here in this sequence is uh, Jim Garrison basically laying out what he thinks might have happened based upon all of the... all of the shit that he's found, all of the people that he's talked to, etc., etc. And it's one of those things that... It's persuasive enough in and of itself. It's, but again, it's just the reason that I don't believe in a conspiracy is the fact that you have something like it looks like there are three teams that are basically taking pot shots at the president right now. Each team consists of it looks like four, five, six guys apiece. Yeah, that's a lot of guys. That's a lot of people to keep quiet. And not to mention Umbrella Guy, who's apparently in on this whole thing too. And um, all of these other, you know, plants and and whoever else that are in the crowd right now watching this whole blood show occur. 
And all of these people, just the people right here that he seems to be implying had something to do with this, keeping all of them quiet, and I don't know. I guess it's possible, but... Oh, by the way, that reminds me. Um, I don't know if it's still there, but at least at one point in the lane the, the limo was driving in at the moment that the shot happened, there's a big red, or sorry, a big white X in the, in the street. And I always thought that was just really fucking morbid. If you want, I, I took a picture of it from ages ago. If you want, I'll put it up on Facebook, the X. So you're kind of wondering if is that official or is that something that somebody just does? The city cleans it up and then somebody goes back and does it again because that's what I would want to think that happened, not that the city itself has decided to commemorate. Well, my understanding is that, or rather, my my assumption was that it's actually the sixth floor museum that does it. And um, did that chick? Uh, wow, it looks like somebody just made the sign of the cross in the. I never noticed that before, but one of the surprised me. I mean, especially since uh, yeah, well, that, uh, yeah, you're right. Kennedy was Catholic, so yeah. Okay, I didn't even notice that, but yeah, it is Louisiana, in Texas. That's a little more rare, but yeah. Well, this is the, yeah. Well, the the murder is going on in Texas, isn't it? Yeah, but I'm saying that somebody in the courtroom. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah, okay. It, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, wow, that's. That's a lot. Yeah, you're you're right. I, if if you were going to buy in that it's that it's an organization, be it the mob or the CIA or whatever, there would be less people involved. It would be pretty tight. Uh, and I would say probably no more than two shooters. Uh, especially with the way that bullet, you know, the kill shot happens essentially. So. I don't. I don't see like three guys and one dude's on a radio behind the one. The guy with the rifle. No, everybody knows their job. You planned this, you know. Well, right, and I get. But the thing is, the reason I find that persuasive though is that you'd need a team that big. You need one guy to do the shooting, one guy to to stay in contact with the mothership, so to speak, another guy to 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 be the spotter, another guy to be the lookout. I mean. You know, everybody has a specific job they've got to do, and no one can double can do double duty because they've got their own job to do. And so I could see it being like a, a, a crew of like three or four or five guys. It's just, I, if it was that big a crew, somebody had to pay them. Somebody had to get them into the camp. Either that or they were all killed. <laughs> well, and that's actually something else. I mean, you know, these guys have got to be pros. I'm sorry, you don't get to just, just because your ass is on the line, you don't go out and take away from the international pool of sharpshooters that are out there. I mean, these guys are, they work for whoever hires them, you know, and something tells me their future employers are going to not be very happy with you if you kill all the best guys. Then again, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It's just, sooner or later, I have to assume somebody would have said something. Somebody would have rolled over on somebody else um, for fame, for profit, for leniency because they're facing other charges. I mean, sooner or later, something would have happened. And it's the fact that it hasn't, that's what... And the other thing is that there are, and this part is true, what we're seeing right now, there are eyewitnesses who say that, who say that specifically that they saw Lee Harvey Oswald holding the gun. And they were in the uh, the uh, the Dallas jail directly across the street. It's a direct line. I realize you've never been there, but it is a direct line of sight. It lines up perfectly with the sixth floor. If they say that they saw it, I would actually tend to believe them. Patrolman Marion Baker runs into Oswald no. second floor lunchroom. I'm not saying that you have to. I'm just saying I find No, I, I, I believe Oswald was involved. 
I'm just I, I don't I don't buy into the, the lone shooter theory, so that's just that's just my thing. Fair enough. I'm I'm kind of strange though. Hey, dude, police your breath. Oh, okay, sorry. On the other side of the I like how they have him wiping off the fingerprints when the fingerprints were okay. But then again, they got it when he was dead. So, dude, I I like get out of breath when I walk up a flight of stairs. So, yeah, no, he's a uh, I guess an Olympian or something. Actually, that's a summer job. Wasn't wasn't he a Wonder Woman? Never mind. Oh, man, you know, <laughs> it's it is tempting to MST3K this thing, isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm just saying that I just get, you just killed the president. It's time for a coke. Is he guilty? Does he walk out the staircase? That's awful. No, he buys a coke. No, I think I'll go this way. Oh, by the way, I uh, if I was trying to escape in a in a chaotic situation, I would walk out the front door and mingle with the crowd. Yeah, I would think that they probably got the back door covered. Yeah, that, that's the best. That's the best way to escape. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, was the slow motion shot here really all that necessary? Or <laughs> it's almost like a Miami Vice look. <laughs> Here I am, picking apart Oliver Stone when I just made the thesis over the past couple hours that he's a genius. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, this is when we really start getting into very heavy conjecture type of territory. When yeah. I was talking about calls from handlers that never came and all of these other things and, you know, what Oswald was feeling. I mean, this is when we start get, going into so far into speculation type of territory that it just... This, this is the lizard people portion of the argument. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this, 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 and then this happened, and then this happened, and it just, it gets to be like they're trying to top themselves on on how crazy they could be. Yeah. Though I do like in the in the intercutting of this scene, they show, like, the other person that was pretending to be Oswald, supposedly shooting the cop instead of Oswald. You know, it's, it's strange to think, this part of Oak Cliff, this is pretty much what it looks like, even to this day, you know? It's what it looked like back then. It's what it looks like now. How close are you to Dallas? Um, because it's this is Texas, I can't answer that in miles. I'd yeah. say I'm about two and a half, maybe three hours away. Okay, yeah. But, no, I, I understand that Texas is a monster. Mm. So, um, like I said, I rode through it. And most of it, the three days that it took us to get from Atlanta to El Paso, I think a day and a half of it was spent in Texas. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, nothing like eight o'clock in the morning and smelling crude oil and not knowing what the hell it was. Yeah, that's a, yeah, if you don't know what it is, it's like this is a, this is like a skunk mixed with old socks mixed with, <laughs> I mean, this is just not human, dude. This is not natural. I was in the back of the trailer. I contacted my, and my, my grandparents via CB and I'm like, I think the septic tank. And they're like, no, it's just crude oil. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Makes me think of that song, Convoy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the um, the thing for those just to kind of give you an idea of uh, geography, right? He basically was in downtown Dallas previously, and so what what Oliver Stone is alleging is that he walked or ran to Oak Cliff, which is on uh, it's basically a it's it's like a neighborhood in Dallas. It's and anyway, it's I'm not even sure what the hell to call it, but it's like a neighborhood. And it's in Dallas. 
And um, so, it, like, more on, like, sort of south-ish as compared to where you are to begin with, south-ish part of town. And it's, I guess it's, like, something like probably two, maybe three miles away from uh, from where he was originally, so... All right. Dear Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, in case you're listening to this and you ever get to live your life over again, uh, punching a cop and then saying, I'm not resisting arrest are contradictory statements. Yes, they are. (laughs) And I, I find that out the hard way myself a few times. (laughs) Oliver Stone is going to make the story of your life. I just want you to know that. Well, let's just say he's not going to bother me about my parking ever again. <laughs> no, you know, the, here's the weird things I think about. It's just like the, the person in the theater is like, you know, I come to these movies in the middle of the afternoon because it's not crowded. And now you're interrupting my film. Seriously. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, there is somebody like that in there. And he's like, <laughs> I don't care who that guy shot. It can wait. <laughs> you know, that guy's in the room. I promise you. There's somebody there. He's not saying it, but he's thinking it. <laughs> Shit, I would be thinking it, you know? I mean... Well, I, I get annoyed when the person in front of me, like, activates their phone, so... Well, that is that is different. I mean, that's, that's just inconsiderate. And um, I think should be punishable with castration. To save future generations. You're, uh, you're you're kind of a hardliner on that one, I see. <laughs> no, the hardliner is execution, isn't it? <laughs> we'll wait till the next episode to discuss your definition of what being a hardliner is and what my definition. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. Well, let's just say though, after I set up my Magnusocracy, things are gonna change. I know. I just won't. You just won't what? I just want an administrative position. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, it's basically going to be the same way that things are right now. We just won't have as many meter maids. <laughs> huh? Thanks, America. Huh? Who's your buddy? Huh? I will not feed your ego. <laughs> it's okay. It feeds itself these days. I was about to say it's pretty. Well, you got enough people doing that, so I figure you don't need me. That's your down. <laughs> now we've now this is where things kind of we've pretty much run through the facts uh, I of guess, the case. Yeah, and even God knows the speculation of the case. And this is where basically Oliver Stone uses Kevin Smith as his puppet, or sorry, uh, Kevin Costner as his puppet, just reaches right up his ass and basically hops him up on the uh, soapbox. And basically ex- explains the value of uh, of truth, I guess in the context of a, I guess a, the sort of republic slash democracy type of government that we have right now, fucking blah, 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 is the kind of thing that if you need to have something like this explained to you, kill yourself. <laughs> and so... Well, I, I do want the deleted scene that they didn't put in the director's cut of Kevin Costner dragging a dead horse onto the set and whipping and flogging it as he's going through his speech. So, yeah. Well, and honestly, that's all that that's all we really need at this point. And to me, 
this is the real weakness of this movie. It's not mm-hmm. that it's not that he isn't articulate. I think Ke- I think Kevin Costner is amazing in this scene. It's just that by now everything that we've seen up to this point, we get it, okay, and we understand. You know, not not just Kennedy specifically. Insert democratically elected president here. This is important, and the government doesn't have the right to just change regimes partway through just because they don't like the main guys. Uh, uh, policies. You don't like it? Shut the fuck up. It's only going to be four years. Yeah, that, that, that's my point. Whether you dislike W, whether you dislike Obama, they are in that office. And what happens to them and, and the truth of the matter is, is important. But, you know, like you said, if you don't like how things are going, just wait, because it's it's going to change. And you have the power to affect that change. Right, and, and just things like this. I just think it's too much. That's that's all I'm saying. It's just no, it, it, it's absolutely. It, this entire ending monologue goes on entirely too long. Uh, he keeps making the same point again and again and again, and it's it, it's Hollywood style, uh, you know, ending, uh, you know, summation basically of, of a trial where. Even though I did, it never even went to trial, did it? Oh yeah, no, it did. It went to trial. I doubt this was his f- closing remarks. <laughs> I doubt it too, actually. No, it would have been pretty cool if the guy did just walk up to Clay Shaw on the, from the stand and point at him, and then go back to the stand and continue giving his testimony. That would be kind of awesome. <laughs> like everyone like, hey, what's going on? Oh, okay, this is new. But, you know, and we have the movie moments of, of the family coming to support him and then um, what's his name coming into the courtroom, uh, you know, even though he quit slash was fired. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and like you said, I mean, it, it's nothing against this is one of those cases where I can enjoy the circumstances surrounding something, but maybe not like that it's there in the first place. Right. You know, I I appreciate. I can see how people appreciate fine wine. I don't want to drink it, <laughs> so I mean it's just. But I'm not, I'm open to to seeing the merits of it, and, and here. God, you know, here's the things I think of in these scenes is is how long it took them. To not only film Costner's portion of this, but all of the reaction shots mm-hmm. that they edit in, and how many reaction shots they didn't put in the film. This is why. This is why on 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 some cases I'd really like to get into filmmaking, but on others I think it would drive me insane. Yeah, because of like the repetition. The, yeah, and the the pieces you shoot this, 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 just those tiny little fragments, you know that. Ugh. And imagine now not being able to do that digitally, to to cut all that stuff together digitally, where you have to cut film. Fuck <laughs> that. Yeah, the fact that there has there was a film industry before the droid editing process <laughs> is something of a minor miracle. That's love. And that's why everyone didn't do it. And you can argue the merits of everyone being able to do it now, you know, till you're blue in the face, but still. <laughs> Well, there's doing it, and there's doing it well, and the cream is always going to rise to the top, but, you know, why well, I say that, you know that freak Fred on uh, YouTube? He's not the cream, but damned if he's not on top. <laughs> that fucking freak. Anyway, but, um, and here, oh, okay, well, I, I, I guess I shouldn't 
go too much further into that. But yeah, you know, I guess my point here is that it's just I think he he just runs his fucking mouth for like five minutes straight or something like that. And you know, there is such a thing as verbal diarrhea, and Oliver Stone had it in this scene. And honestly, it's not up to Kevin Costner to say that we need to shorten the dialogue in this or the monologue in this scene. It's not his business to say that. But at the same time, I mean, you'd have thought at some point along the way, somebody would have said to to, to old Ollie, hey, man, you think maybe we should shorten this up just a little bit? But apparently fucking nobody did. And is that guy wearing a blouse in the background there? I think that's a woman. With a mustache? I don't think so, sir. <laughs> Well, it's gone now, but it's like writing shit down in a notepad, and it's like a dude. He has like the horn rim '60s glasses going. Right? You know what I'd love to do though is to reshoot this entire thing, but take pieces from every ending speech of a movie ever. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine intercutting this with, <laughs> with the president's speech at the end of Independence Day, <laughs> and then intercutting that with Clark W. Griswold's speech at the end of. Um, which one yes, is it? Christmas Na- Vacation. Well, I was gonna, well, I, well, that one, or the um, the other one where they went to Wally World. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is what people really count on. And, <laughs> and hey, you can even make a you know six degrees thing out of it. John Candy's in that one too. So the president's dead. The moose outside should have told you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow, we were both getting punchy here, aren't we? <laughs> well, you know, you, you do. You know, th- this isn't like doing a, a commentary for Batman Forever, where you know, you know, in about an hour and a half, the movie's going to be over. So. <laughs> yeah, this one really is a widowmaker. Golly, <laughs> I forgot. And we are doing the director's cut too. Just remember, guys, that was Michael's idea, not mine. <laughs> this whole thing was Michael's idea, not mine. All, all, um, all complaints can be addressed to Michael at FortressOfBailey2.com. That is a real address, by the way. <laughs> yes, it is, because I send spam there all the time. Oh, you're that guy. I am that guy. <laughs> Basically, I'm trying to take out one of my main uh, uh, competition uh, in the uh, podcasting world. So. Good luck with that. Well, I figure if I can annoy you enough with spam about <laughs> you know, refinancing your mortgage or something like that, you'll eventually <laughs> say, you know what? Nothing in life is worth this. I just want somebody to cut right to the chase and have the refinancing your erection email and just combine the mortgage with the Viagra. <laughs> uh, I do appreciate the emo- his emotional level at the end of the speech, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because he's pretty much breaking down, you know, almost crying. Do not forget, you don't die in king. I think that's the only time anyone lo- actually looks into the camera, the whole movie. And he winks and walks out the door. And smiles. Throwing up the deuces. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And that's that's almost pretty much it. Because like you said, uh, Clay Shaw is not found guilty. And I appreciate that. I like the fact that he didn't want to go that Hollywood. You know? (laughs) Where, uh, where, where it's a happy ending because it's not. And to be fair, it you know convicting him was important, but bringing all this to light was almost as important as that. You know, and of course that entire ending monologue really just nailed that home. 
Well, and you know what? To be, I, I, I feel like now that I think about it, I was going a little hard on Stone there. Because the fact is, you can't go through all of that sort of emotional buildup and bullshit and speculation that went on with what could have happened with Kennedy's uh, death. And then, you know, cut right to... And we find the defendant not guilty. Bye. Roll credits. You know? <laughs> like in, like really fast, too. Like, like you're hoping the audience doesn't notice. Yeah, and, the, you know, I mean, people would have been out of there looking like they just got punched right in the nards. I mean, I'm, I, and so I get it. I'm just saying that for, you know, I understand what he was going for there. It's just brevity really is the soul of wit, motherfucker. Anyway, so it just, it could have been done more efficiently. So, yeah. In general, though, the I guess the the big legacy of this movie, I would have thought for how long ago it came out, this has really shaped the debate as to whether or not there was, in fact, a uh, conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy. I think it's a completely fucking relevant question to ask when you see a movie that's all about conspiracy theories involving the death of John F. Kennedy, right? Mm-hmm. But um, what I find is that there are not as many conspiracy true believers now, or at least if there are any out there, I, I'm not seeing as many of them. It seems like it's actually starting to become a little bit more mainstream that, excuse me, a little bit more of a mainstream idea that... It, it's um, also becoming less relevant. Well, that too. Because when you really think about it, the current generation is forgetting about stuff that was important to us in high school. And that was 20 years ago. Mm. Now we're talking 50 years ago. Like, everybody that was really affected by the death of John F. Kennedy, and it's not, and, it, and it's more than just a, a fact in a history book, they're kind of dying off <laughs> at an exponential rate. So... I think more people are focused on the current... Cons- it's like, this isn't the cool conspiracy theory anymore. Like, most people will probably go, oh, yeah, it was probably more than one person. But let me tell you about 9-11. Oh, jeez. Well, yeah. maybe. And you know what? Maybe you're right. All I can say, though, is that... I guess what I'm hoping for is that eventually whatever fucking files and documents that we haven't seen yet, for whatever reason... Eventually that stuff comes out, it's nothing we haven't already heard before, it's not anything new, and basically we can finally put this shit to bed and, you know, it's just... I'm actually starting to think, though, that you could find a confession written in Lee Harvey Oswald's own blood, that he in fact did do this, and there are some percentage of people out there who are so entrenched in their point of view, and so, I don't know, maybe there's just pride or something in their way that they will still maintain that there must have been a conspiracy of some kind and that's my god's honest opinion but no well yeah facts and the truth are never going to get in the way of a good conspiracy theory they just never are and to me I think one of the sad things about the information finally uh, coming public is that when it does, when that date happens, I forget what year he said it was. Um, 2038. 2038. So on the 100th anniversary of Superman, 
And boy, we'll be podcasting like crazy then. Yes, we you know, will. In, in my 60s. Um, but when that happens, it's going to be a like uh, a three-minute segment on the news, and that's it. It's not going to like, oh, yeah, it came out. And by the way, it turns out the aliens did it. So, well, I, I, maybe that would make more news. Than... That would. Actually, that would be <laughs> worth waiting for. <laughs> That would you know, be totally. One person out there that's like crossing their fingers, going, "Please, please." There is a deleted scene with X, like that was supposed to take place after the trial, I believe. If mm. I'm remembering the deleted scenes, which kind of glad that that didn't happen in the film because, like, like we said, you know, Sutherland pretty much walked away. Seeing him again would kind of kind of sullied that. So, well, and you know, the thing is, it ends with the Garrison family. Kenny O'Donnell was in the like somebody was playing Kenny O'Donnell in this movie. That's kind of funny. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, my, I, mine already already flipped mine off, so I just figured. Uh, uh, I just have the credits rolling as we're sitting here talking. So. Wow. <laughs> well, I guess there would have to be because they did all those uh, flashbacks yeah. to. Okay, that makes sense. That's. But no, again, you know, just kind of wrapping up my thoughts. I think I, I love this movie. Uh, I do watch it more than once a year. Uh, I think it's a it's a good. It, it's just an engaging viewing experience. Whether or not I believe anything that uh, Oliver is saying with the film is actually secondary to why I like the movie. So I, I didn't come here for the conspiracy theory. I came here for the pageantry and the cast and the writing. All right, fair enough. Well, um, that pretty much is uh, the high points of everything that I had to talk about. So um, uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, just the, the really quick version, because you can actually find the links to all the uh, to the other stuff of this. Go to uh, viewsfromlongbox.com. That's my main podcast. Uh, I also do From Crisis to Crisis uh, Superman podcast with Jeffrey Taylor which uh, you can find at the Superman homepage or at fortressofbailey2.com and like Mr. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Magnus here I am also on the Two True Freaks Network I am part of Comics Monthly Monday and I am part of Tales of the JSA Alright, awesome Well, uh, Michael, thank you very much for first of all suggesting that we do this because this was a real blast, and uh, also for joining in. So um, I had a lot of uh, a lot of fun talking about all this stuff with you. It was India Trent Tess. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, that's basically it for me. I'm completely talked out, so no promos or anything this week. We're gonna we're just gonna just cruise on out of here. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. Uh, wow, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled... T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality There you can interact with your fellow listeners 
and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>